you know, the survival archetypes are there to help you survive, but not thrive. Right. So a lot of times when we're playing <laughs> out the survival archetypes, we're doing what we think we have to do to stay alive, either literally or metaphorically. But a lot of times that's usually at the expense of our own health, at the expense of our own freedom, at the expense of our own empowerment. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul welcomes back Greg Schmaus. Greg is a holistic health practitioner and founder of Healing 4D. He is the creator of Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, and Healing Your Core Archetypes, A Journey of Empowerment. Through Greg's coaching and programs, he guides clients and students from all over the world in finding meaning and purpose to their healing journeys. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. A big thank you to our premier sponsors, Bioptimizers, Organifi, and Paleo Valley, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures, and our preferred product sponsor, Peak Life. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products they produce. Please check the show notes for links and details. Today, Paul and Greg are talking on the topic of archetypes and healing. This is my third podcast with Greg Shamaus. If you haven't listened to the two previous podcasts with Greg, they're fantastic. And we're going to journey into some of the most important concepts for our own personal healing with Greg today. And we'll get into all the nitty gritty and explanation of keywords like what is an archetype and discuss some of the important contents that Greg has in his course, which I think is something worth exploring because we all have archetypal healing to do, which is a necessary part of our psychological growth and development and our spiritual growth and development. And Greg has done a lot of that healing himself. Through all that healing, he's really developed a level of mastery of it. And we spent a lot of time working on these issues when he was my client for two and a half years. And we made a lot of progress together. And I'm super excited that he's out there making amazing courses and helping a lot of people. So, Greg, welcome back. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. Well, you ready to dive into this amazing course you got and see if we can share lots of things with people, whether they take the course or not, and inspire them to, as Ken Wilber says, wake up, clean up, grow up, and show up. I sure hope so. And, you know, this, this course is very much an expression of my own healing journey, as the first course was. but. This course actually, you know, came from a deeper place inside of me. It was really an expression of wanting to understand myself, wanting to understand the the reasons I do the things I do, the reasons I say the things I say, and also really understand the unique blockages that show up on the healing journey for each one of us. And to kind of answer that million dollar question of why sometimes people don't heal. Well, that's a big one. And the other thing is why we don't do the things we should do and why we don't say the things we need to say too. That's equally important, isn't it? Yeah. When it comes to the healing process, which we'll get into this in quite depth, there's a lot of 
different aspects of us that have some benefit in not healing. And what I really wanted to get to the root of was to really understand why, to really understand what these key obstacles were. And the first place that I started is my own life. So a lot of this course is not just me studying these archetypes in a textbook somewhere, but using the curriculum of my own life journey as the best classroom to really understand these patterns. And also the beauty of it is we all have these archetypes, so we can all relate to it. It's not something that's unique to any one of us as individuals. No, I think the discussion we'll have will make that really obvious to people. Uh, it's, you know, that's the nature of an archetype, as we will discuss. But I think, you know, the world is mirroring back to us right now our our personal and collective need to really look into these archetypes. Yeah. Both for our personal healing and to see why we have some of these collective nightmares going on that just keep repeating themselves over and over again, which is exactly what happens when you're caught in your unconscious programming or when you have traumas that are not resolved. You just keep attracting the same situations back to you because ultimately, you know, spirit and soul are here to grow and become. And so if we have these limitations in us, then we can't really move past them. Just like, you know, you, if you're building a multi-story building and you use cheap cement and rotten wood, the building's going to keep collapsing where you keep using cheap cement and rotten wood. And no matter how many times you make that mistake, it'll, it'll all, gravity will always bring justice to you. And yeah. so the, you know, the, the, the ego, as you know, creates inertia. It's, it's got psychic mass and, and the programming that we carry has its, its function. And, and we'll probably talk about some of these things. I'm sure we will. But the problem is, is that some of our coping strategies that help get us by ultimately can become like, like a drag suit for a swimmer. You know, you, you, you can never really get free of the drag of these things or the weight of them. And, and sometimes people get so accustomed to having these impediments to their own full expression of themselves that they become so identified with themselves that they actually fall into this dangerous place of not knowing who they would be without them. And that's, you know, going to be in your survival archetypes that we'll talk about. But, you know, these are all like, these are things that are rarely talked about. And even in most standard psychological circles, you could spend 10 years with a psychologist and have no one look into these archetypes, especially if you're dealing with behavioral psychologists, which is uh, really a, a common approach because behavioral psychology tries to deal with things at the level of the ego, which I've always find quite fascinating how they actually think that's going to work. And having studied many books on this, they, one of the common things they say is, oh, you don't have to worry about your childhood programming. That's not necessary. It's just a matter of behavior change. And so, you know, the problem is I've been doing this for, as you know, 40 years of, as of January, and I've never seen that approach work other than like a superficial type modulation of one situation. So someone might have an addiction, they use behavioral modification, but the next thing you know, they've just got another type of addiction that might be more socially acceptable. So it looks like they've changed, but they really have just traded one problem for a new one. That's all. You know, when you're coaching people, which I've 
you know, been working as a holistic health practitioner and check practitioner for almost 10 years now, you give people things to do, which involves behavior change, whether it's dietary changes, exercise to do, meditation. And you notice that a lot of people end up not doing them, even though that you know that change will be beneficial for them. And they do too. That's the paradox. They'll come back and go, I don't know why I'm not doing that. You know, and, and that's, yeah. that's one of the ways you know you're caught in your programming. You know, when people say things and do things and say things like, I don't know why I said that. I knew I shouldn't have said that, but I did it and I don't know why. There you're, you're, that's a clear indicator that you have an unconscious program running. And, you know, in all fairness to people, one of the challenges is they don't have enough management of what you and I referred to as the four doctors to have enough energy to go through the change process. Change takes a lot of energy and it takes real commitment and focus. So if someone's tired and not healthy, their body's in survival mode. So, you know, changing your relationship with alcohol or better managing an abusive relationship or uh, healing childhood wounds is something that the psyche doesn't seem, uh, doesn't think is essential when the body itself is not healthy. So, you know, I would preface our conversation by saying that this is all very important, but it's also built on the fact that you have to have some level of commitment to, you know, having a clearly stated dream, moving your body adequately, eating healthy food in proportions that are ideal for your needs, and getting enough rest. And, and of course, this is all part of Dr. Quiet's introspection, looking into yourself. So getting enough sleep is one thing, but taking time each day to honestly evaluate how your day unfolded, how do you feel about your relationship with yourself through the day, and how do you feel about your relationship with others through the day, and if we don't take that time for self-reflection, then we're completely unaware that we're actually living a Groundhog Day experience where we end up having the same conflicts with friends, family, coworkers, bosses, parents, and, and ourselves. And so, you know, these are very, very important things. And that's why, as you know, I have the four doctrine model as sort of the forefront of my education because... I'm very, very aware that you have to have the energy to change and you have to have a dream big enough that it's more important for you to achieve than living in crisis mode all the time. So with that kind of preface, your course is titled Healing Your Core Archetypes, A Journey of Empowerment. Other than your own healing, what inspired you to create this course? Yeah, obviously my own healing, my own desire to understand my patterning. But also, like I was saying, having worked with clients for almost 10 years now, really wanting to deeply understand why is the change process so hard for people? Why do people have a tendency to continue to make choices that are not serving them or optimal for them when a part of them knows it, but it seems like there's some sort of secondary gain in not healing? So that big question of why people don't heal and what are the most common blockages and obstacles in the healing process? And what part of us is actually benefiting from our illness? What part of us might be benefiting from some sort of pain or disease? 
is something that I've always been so curious about, both professionally, but also exploring my own patterns of self-sabotage in the past. So a lot of it is really, you know, my willingness and my desire to understand these patterns, and also starting to really see how one's relationship with these archetypes are really our relationship with our own power, our relationship with how we get our needs met. And they also represent a lot of the deeper contracts that we have in relationship to ourselves, others, life, etc. And so it was really a deep desire to understand all of this and then be able to share it with others. Yes. What are some of the types of changes people experience in themselves and in their lives after completing your course or addressing their core archetypal issues with you, either in private coaching or people that have completed the course and you've had a chance to talk to them? Yeah, I would say the first thing is always greater self-awareness which I think is absolutely critical. And the self-awareness with these archetypes, you know, when you're working with archetypes and you're creating a relationship with them, you're creating this subject-object relationship with a pattern, which creates space for you to make a different choice. You know, there's a difference between unconsciously identifying with something versus consciously being in relationship with something. And when you can start to be in relationship with an archetype, you create enough space between you and the archetype to actually reevaluate, reassess, and have the space inside of you to make a different choice. The other thing is, you know, having this awareness allows people to see their patterns of self-sabotage, allows them to see where they're getting their needs met in some unhealthy way, whether it's holding on to an illness as a way of receiving more empathy and compassion from people, or not wanting to heal their back pain when they say they do, but they realize they're on medical leave from a job that they don't enjoy. So you start to see a lot of obvious patterns as to where the blockages are in the healing process. And I think this course and a lot of my work with individuals studying these archetypes allows them to see and allows them to clear the path so healing can actually happen. A lot of times, we're the biggest obstacle between us and our own healing. Most of the time. time. And the ways in which we used to get our needs met, which brought us a sense of safety and security as a child, but now might be holding us back from a sense of freedom and empowerment. So a lot of this course and a lot of the coaching in these archetypes is really letting go of the old contract that brought you a sense of safety and security and really negotiating with yourself a new contract that's moving you more towards a sense of freedom and empowerment. So those, I think, are the key ingredients of what people experience with this course. Yeah, those are important. Now, you're using some words that might people might find hard to comprehend one is a relationship with a pattern and then having contracts. I'm interested to hear how are you having a relationship with a pattern and what's your conception of these contracts that you're suggesting we've made? 
when I say patterns, I mean how these archetypes express themselves. We can take the victim archetype. There's a way in which we act out the pattern of the victim archetype. And once we can see it, not necessarily as us, but as an expression of the victim archetype, now you're in relationship with it. And I have free will separate from Paul because I experience myself separate from Paul. So there's a subject-object relationship. So with this work, you allow yourself to create enough space between you and that archetypal pattern that allows you to engage it, understand it, develop a relationship with, and then gives you the free will to make a different choice. So that's, that's what I meant by being in relationship with a pattern is creating that space between you and how that archetype expresses so your awareness can then lead you into a different choice, another option. Yes, uh, to that I, I would add that one. You know, we we haven't given the description of an archetype yet, <clears throat> but the things that I would add w in that regard would be, you know, archetype as we're about to get into means primal pattern or original pattern. So when we're talking about archetypes, we're we're talking about something that isn't like a pattern drawn on a blackboard or in art or on a t-shirt, we're talking about a mode of conscious expression. An archetype is a mode of in, through which the psyche creates meaning, conscious awareness. And we'll, we'll go deeper into this in a minute with, our, with your explanation of what an archetype is. But why I'm bringing this up for, is to help people understand that when you're talking about an archetype, you're actually talking about an aspect of one's psyche. Now, an archetype, a set of archetypes that most everybody's familiar with are the signs of the zodiac, such as, you know, I'm uh, born on the cutoff between Leo and Virgo. Somebody might be a Gemini or a Cancer or a Scorpio. Those are archetypes. And an archetype transforms pure psychic energy into some aspect with which we can make meaning. So if you think of God as pure consciousness, there's no way to know something that is unconditional like that. Pure, we, we, we wouldn't even know pure energy if we were walking through it, but we know sunlight because it's transformed from pure potential energy into sunlight and warmth. So you could say that the sun can be an archetype the archetype of growth or the archetype of warmth or the archetype of self is, as is often because we have a solar plexus, which is where our sense of self is at. So here, if we see that the sun is drawing energy from its environment, which is invisible energy and it's producing visible energy, we call light and heat. Then the sun would be like an archetype that allows us to make meaning out of something that we could not comprehend because we don't have any means of comprehending something that doesn't have any way to express it. You know, an empty page doesn't tell you very much. But if you, if I hand you a page with 26 letters of the alphabet on it, you can say, okay, he's handing me a page with the alphabet on it. And then if you said to me, what are those letters on the page? I would say, well, there are archetypes in each of them 
has a mode of creating meaning. For, for, for example, if we use the letter I, then we all know that we're talking about ourselves. But if we say we're using the letters I, space, A, M, then we're talking about some verb of ourself. I am talking to Greg, or I am meditating. So the pure energy that I was referring to before would be like the empty page, which in this, for, for those that have the orientation toward God, God would be unconditional love. It would be that which everything, but, but nothing that you can comprehend because it's unconditional. So an archetype is a converter. It's like a you know, the technical word is manifold. It takes one thing and converts it into something else. And without that, we can't make meaning. So just like the letters of an alphabet allow us to communicate in ways that make meaning, archetypes do the same thing in our psyche. Without archetypes, we would have no way to think. We would have no way to process information. Or would, nor would we have any way to understand our emotions and therefore, we would remain completely and utterly unconscious. We would be like a hose that doesn't know that water is flowing through it, just like we don't know that God's flowing through us all the time without archetypes. I, I wanted to clarify that because a lot of people might be confused as to how do you have a relationship with a pattern, but these are actually patterns of psychic energy that are common to all human beings. And Jung was really the one that first objectified that in, in uh, ways that we could understand it. Meant there was many people that talked about these things, but he calls the realm of archetypes the objective psyche. You know, what, what Greg's experiencing as he sits in his chair right now and what Paul's experiencing as he's sitting in his chair is subjective. But the fact that we're both sitting on chairs is objective because there's an archetype for chairs, which includes all chairs or anything that you sit on, and uses a chair. So there we have something objective between us. So uh, for those of you listening, an archetype or all archetypes compose what Jung referred to as the objective psyche because they're all things that we can relate to in common, but we need them to understand and communicate with each other. Is there, why don't you go ahead and share whatever else you wanted to share with regard to what an archetype is, just so we make sure that people have a clear understanding as we go in, because if you don't understand what an archetype is, this, this conversation could be quite confusing. Yeah, so like you had shared a little bit earlier, you know, an archetype is an original pattern, and it really represents the language of the psyche. And the archetypes are really very much the vehicles that we use to express ourselves in relationship to self and other. So, you know, you could say that there's, you know, in our relationship, there was the student and teacher archetype relationship. There's the coach and mentor, right? So we're all taking on roles of certain archetypes as a way of expressing ourselves. And as a way of relating, which allows us to come to know ourselves. So archetypes mm. really allow us to have a language to come to know ourselves in individual form. To thine own self be true, or thou canst be true to any other man. And until you know yourself, you're really never going to be able to distinguish 
yourself from other. The beautiful thing about the course you put together is it really orients itself toward the archetypes that are most essential for us to look into because most of the challenges that come up with the survival archetypes and the, what we call the core archetypes actually have to do with our programming by mm. our parents, family, education, society, culture, media. And so we often find ourselves acting out our persona, which is a, a combination of all this programming, but we sometimes can, you know, all, and, and sadly more often than, than we would like to admit, get into a situation where we have feelings of not liking ourselves, but not knowing how to change ourselves. You know, for example, why, why am I so lazy or why can't I ever seem to complete projects or why do I have such a hard time in, you know, love relationships or how come I can never seem to make enough money to, you know, save any, you know, there's, there's a myriad of these types of patterns and a person can easily fall into a, shall we say, a painful relationship with themselves because they recognize at some point that they're not able to get past these, these sort of invisible blockages in their life. Yeah, and archetypes and a lot of what I take you through in this course allows you to move past some of the guilt, shame, and judgment around that of why can't I make these changes? Why can't I do this? Why can't I show up in this way? And actually brings you more into an orientation of first, let's understand how you're benefiting from that pattern. And once you understand how you're benefiting, you understand what unconscious need is getting met. So then you can say, okay, how can I now get this need met in a conscious way? Yes. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to tell you about Wild Pastures' amazing meat delivery service. They have beef, chicken, pork, and wild-caught fish. My family and I have been enjoying their meat for quite some time now, and I just couldn't wait to tell you about it any longer. We had an amazing barbecue this weekend, and I'm still high off the meat. And they use a whole network of regenerative farms, which means that you're getting a different ecosystem from each farm, which means a different nutritional profile, which means nutritional diversity, which means health and vitality, which is exactly what we need right now in the world for ourselves and our families so we can all make a difference in the world. And Matt Smith's going to tell us more about this amazing company, Wild Pastures, about their offering and how you can get it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Paul. And I'm excited to tell your listeners what they can get today and how we can help them out. So, you know, as you know, pastured meats are crazy expensive. And so our goal with Wild Pastures is to tap into this network of regenerative farmers and to finally create the solution of where we can get the highest quality meats delivered straight to your door for the most affordable prices around. And so we're on average seeing that we are 40% cheaper than any other delivery option out there. And that our customers have reportedly saved, on average, $1,000 on their grocery bill from meat alone. And so Wild Pastures is a regenerative meat delivery service that is solving this problem. And you can get 100% grass-fed and finished, as well as pasture-raised pork and poultry and wild-caught seafood from Alaska delivered straight to your door. So it's far more convenient. It's far more environmentally friendly because we're using regenerative farms entirely. We don't use feedlots ever. So the, the nutrition profiles are way better. You can definitely taste the difference. I know we were talking about this on our 
uh, just before we hopped on, you having a Father's Day barbecue and, and how incredible the pasture-raised chicken and beef short ribs were. And you can really taste the difference, right? I'm and still so, high. <laughs> and so our goal is to remove the roadblock from people's minds that if they want to eat healthy, it's too expensive. And so that's where Wild Pastures comes in is we are delivering with our own fleets of trucks whenever possible. We haven't raised our meat prices in over three years at this point, And we're really just creating convenience for the consumer and kind of being the high tide that rises all ships. If we can opt more people into a system like this, the cost stays down for everybody. And so there is a myriad of benefits that go into that. And so Today, if your listeners want to try Wild Pastures and taste the difference and experience what it's like, go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul Check or click the link in the show notes and save 20% off for life, plus get free shipping for life, plus get $15 off your first box. That's a mind blowing deal. I can't even <laughs> imagine. I mean, I've never heard of an offer like that. And, you know, most people will hear an offer like that and think this can't be that good, but I'm telling you, it's not. It's not only that good, it's really good, or I would not be sharing this on my podcast. I think everybody needs to get a hold of Wild Pastures for their family, for their vitality, for their longevity, and for the future of this planet. So thank you guys very much. So Matt, Matt just repeat the website again. Sure. Just go to wildpastures.com forward slash Paul Check, or visit the link in the show notes and get 20% off for life, plus free shipping for life plus $15 off your first box so you can try it. You'll be glad you did. We speak of soul contracts and we speak of, you know, archetypal contracts and things like that. But for many, that's sort of an elusive concept. A lot of people have no conception of the, the idea that they might have any choice to do anything in the afterlife because these most of these contracts are established when we come into life. They're not... It's not like you sit down in a classroom when you're 12 and say, okay, I'm going to take on the victim archetype and I'm going to, I'm going to meet the following 72 people in my life. And this one's going to piss me off. And this one's going to hold my hand and help me grow. So for a lot of people, these kinds of concepts, they, they seem very uh, fluffy, new age. They can't wrap their heads around them. And, and admittedly, these, these are deep concepts, you know, without a study of metaphysics and real spiritual development. You can see why people would be confused about having a contract with something that they seem to have no agency over, and they don't even often have agency over it in their lifetime. You know, yes, we can make friends and things like that, but oftentimes we don't realize the people we're making friends with, we're making friends with because it was, shall we say, ordained. It, it was something we came in with. So the next question is, what are archetypal contracts, and how does that relate to, uh, to the healing journey? So maybe as you address that, I'd like to hear you see what, what comes out of you with regard to, you know, how in the world are we getting these soul contracts? I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we don't even have to make it like new agey or fluffy. We can make it very simple and we can even, we can even replace the word contracts with agreements. You know, that might be like a, an easier word for people to understand. and. I can give some examples of how that practically shows up in someone's everyday life so they can see it, you know, not esoterically, but more practically. So if we take the victim archetype, for example, you know, I remember as a child, my dad was a physician, still is, 
didn't have like a very deep emotional connection with him. He was a great provider, but I was always looking for some deeper connection. And I remember any time that I was in pain or had some sort of injury, my mom would take me to my dad's office and I would get the best treatment from my dad, his nurses, his partners. So the child in me said, when I'm in pain, I get more love from dad. Ah, yeah. So there's a contract that I made or an agreement that I made with myself is I will use pain to get my emotional needs met and to connect with my father, right? That's an example of a contract or an agreement of how we get certain needs met. Another example for the victim, which we'll get into this archetype in detail a little bit later, is the victim and the rescuer very often come together, right? The victim is looking to be rescued from the rescuer archetype. And the rescuer is looking to save a victim. So for example, if you're in your home and you leave the oven on and now your house is on fire, you need to call the firefighters to come rescue you. So there's a contract there between rescuer and victim. Rescuer is there to save the victim. Victim's looking to be rescued by the rescuer. There's a contract there. Now, a lot of times we you could say sign contracts consciously and unconsciously. My contract as a child of getting my emotional needs met using pain was an unconscious contract. But that firefighter who chose to be a firefighter as his career, that was a conscious contract. That was a conscious choice that he made. Just like I made a conscious choice to be a healer in my profession. The healer is another archetype. So a lot of times the conscious contracts are what our soul might be drawn to as a way of expressing our uniqueness in this lifetime. But a lot of the unconscious contracts are how we use some disempowered pattern or disempowered role to get certain needs met. And those are the things that we're needing to heal on the healing journey. Those are the things that usually cause the blockages, the obstacles, and the patterns of self-sabotage. Yes. Now, a distinction here is... I agree with everything you've said, but you're describing this in a way that is oriented towards the events that we have when we're in life. And there are these common archetypes, but Jung says you, you do not choose archetypes, they choose you. And so there's a deeper archetypal relationship going on. The core and the survival archetypes are actually an inherent part of the process of individuation. If you don't heal those archetypes, you do not become an individual whole unto themselves. In other words, you really never reach enough agency and clarity to become a co-creator in the divine plan or the universal plan. You just act out programming unconsciously. So, you know, of course, you're familiar with the term soul contracts. I think what I'm trying to get at, maybe you can share your thoughts on this, is that how do you describe to people the concept of whether it be soul contracts or the contracts that our soul might be making that requires us to have a relationship with key archetypes as we go through our life? Because a lot of these things are, certainly many people are lost in their life. They're, you know, in careers that aren't fulfilling. And as I described in my Evolve Yourself series, I talked about how we often don't realize that we're 
doing things that seem disconnected that, that they don't really give us a sense of fulfillment. You know, I did a lot of jobs when I was young that I couldn't wait to stop doing. So I was always looking for the next best opportunity. And at that time, and you know, in my teens and 20s, I didn't really realize until way later when I found my career path and grew enough spiritually to have this level of awareness that I could look back through my life and see, wow, almost every single job that I did, even the ones I didn't like, brought me into contact with key people and gave me key experiences and key knowledge that ultimately were really important to fulfilling my life path that I came here to live out. Call it, you know, the, the creation of the Czech Institute, for example. And there was various moments where I had sort of this almost like a aha, like, oh my God, look at that. And so I describe it as this golden thread that was holding all the pieces together, but I didn't even know it was there. So when we're talking about these contracts, we're making these things a priori, prior to our manifestation in physical form. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts, because a lot of people would think, well, how in the hell do you do that? <laughs> I can hardly make these contracts in a body. Yeah, so I think there's actually very simple ways that you can start to explore this. And three things come to mind that I'll share that have been pretty profound and beneficial on my journey. Number one is looking back at your childhood, looking back at some of the gifts that you had as a child. And a lot of times you can actually follow this breadcrumb trail that leads you back to some deeper purpose. You know, I'm actually at my parents' house right now. And in my childhood bedroom, when I look at my, my windows, the window shades, it's all designed with Native American teepees. That's <laughs> so funny. And when I ask my parents, like, why did you design my room in this way? They're like, I don't know, just like, it looked cool. But over the last five to 10 years, especially since you and I connected, I have found a deep connection to shamanism. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. <laughs> yeah. So there's actually these little signs and symptoms all along, if you kind of look close enough, that there's, there's aspects of these contracts that kind of show their face and just give you these little insights throughout your journey. So number one is looking at your childhood. It could be your childhood environment. It could be the things you love to do. Even the movies you love to watch. A lot of times what you're attracted to in terms of entertainment hold a lot of the archetypes that you have contracts with. That makes me a warrior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, you know, I loved Harry Potter, which for me is a lot of magic and shamanism. I loved Batman, which was a lot of kind of shadow work and going into kind of like the darkness. So, mm -hmm. you know, all of these archetypes really were there in childhood. The other piece I would say is look at some of the pains and wounds that you had to work through at a young age. You know, as you know, you, you guided me through a lot of my healing crisis. So a lot of the pains and wounds that you experience in your earlier years are sort of the initiation that's guiding you into your soul contract. So the gifts, childhood, the wounds and also looking at the family that you incarnated into. A lot of times there's familial patterns that you came into resolve. Like I incarnated into a family with Holocaust history. 
So there's a lot of deep archetypal patterns within the Holocaust that are needing to be healed. So you can see some of the contracts and some of the ancestral piece as well. Yeah, these are all great insights. And I, I think you did a great job on that. So those are the breadcrumb trail that we can look at in this physical manifestation of ourselves in our life. And a couple of things I would add too, just to put a little more clarity to it and then a little more depth to it is that when you get to a certain age, and I know, I know you're there, you can look back on your life and think of all the people that really pissed you off and really hurt you. And you realize I couldn't be the person that I am if I hadn't have gone through that experience. And, and this is, we're going to talk about this when we get to these survival archetypes, because that's where this really becomes alive. But, you know, for example, I remember teachers in school that I hated, like I just didn't like them at all. But later in my life, certain situations came where they had said something to me, you know, like my math teacher, Mr. Hirschkorn, who was a real ball buster, told me, Paul, you know, you don't realize it right now because you're too young, but you're going to need these math skills to navigate life. And if you don't apply yourself to the study, there's going to come a time in your life where you're really going to wish you had because something's going to happen that requires at least basic math skills. And you're going to be stuck if you don't have them, or you're going to end up making bad decisions that bite you. Like if you can't balance a checkbook, that can create a problem. The point I'm driving is it's, it's also included in this discussion is it takes time to get to the point where you can look back, but you can actually see how the people that hurt us and the people that made our life very stressful and challenging, as much as we resented it and hated it at the time, actually often woke us up to something or maybe created so much resent that it repelled us from something. And if we hadn't have been repelled, we might have gone on the wrong trail in our life. So it's almost like sometimes the people that we don't like are there to do us the favor of pointing us in another direction by making us not like, you know, like if you're not meant to be a mathematician, you're meant to be an artist you might have a contract with a math teacher to really make you not like math so you don't fall into the wrong archetypal pathway. Yeah, that's why, you know, one of the best reframes for rejection is redirection. Yes, very good. Very true. The only other thing I would add is, and this is much more of a spiritual perspective, if you consider that, well, I'm, I'm going to try to make it a little simpler, but if you consider that God as unconditional love does not have a mind till relationships evolve in the process. So ultimately God's dreaming itself into existence. So because God is in its own individuation process, its own self-realization process, because that which is unconditional can't know itself without the, without the creating the illusion of conditions in order to make meaning. Therefore, each soul is brought into creation as a dream that is part of a process of God's own self-realization. And I know a lot of people have this false conception that God knows everything and God is perfect, but, you know, I could give you a, a lot of metaphysical uh, chop suey to show that that's actually not true. But the point that I'm making is, you know, Greg Shamaus came into God's dream with a role to fulfill by, by definition, soul 
in Greek is entelechy, which means a guiding intelligence that has purpose. For example, if you plant an acorn, you're not going to get a banana tree, and you're not going to get a chicken out of it. You're going to get an oak tree, because the acorn carries the entelechy of the oak tree, the guiding intelligence. So you could say the acorn has a resonant relationship with the concept or the archetype that contains the idea of the oak tree. So when God dreams itself into existence and creates souls to fulfill this process of experience so that it can experience itself, it says, I dream that I need a healer to work with this part of myself, these people at this time, so that I can have this sense of fulfillment and bring this part, these parts of myself into wholeness. And so Greg Shamaus is born into this archetypal role. And so in this process, the rest of the souls that are dreamed into existence are in a higher vibrational state, or you could say a higher dimension, which Chris Hardy would call the SIG dimension, the dimension of meaning, where consciousness is actually cultivating meaning. And Greg says, well, I'm going to need a teacher along the way to teach me about archetypes, and I'm going to need mom and dad to you know, put me in certain situations so that I actually can get wounded and end up having to go through a healing process. So there what I'm referring to is that at the level of the psyche, we're actually interacting with other souls, but the soul of us has this sense of destiny. It has the sense of the unfolding. It knows what the butterfly is meant to be when it comes out of its chrysalis. So from a metaphysical perspective, the idea of soul contracts and archetype contracts are actually very much what we need to guide us because if you think of God as a giant puzzle within which we are all one piece, Greg wouldn't know where he fits in on the puzzle if he didn't have these relationships that ultimately allow Greg's puzzle piece to express his uniqueness. And nor could anybody else express their uniqueness without the other puzzle pieces around us, such as mom, dad, friend, boss, co-worker, pastor, preacher, game warden, prison warden, whatever we interact with. So I would just say for the listeners that this is a metaphysical concept, but it's been investigated and I've investigated it deeply from a spiritual perspective. So I think that ties it, it together nicely. We've now looked at the metaphysical aspects. You gave a great explanation of how we can pick up the cookie trail, the crumb trail, or the yellow brick road and say, ah, look at that, look at that. Here I am in my childhood bedroom and mom and dad put curtains in my room that carry the same archetypal motifs that have actually ultimately been of great interest and importance to me at this time in my life. And little did mom and dad know that their choice was unconscious yet somehow driven by their own soul contract with you. And there you see the mystery unveiled. And that, that's, that's what I think is so fun, because even though life and God is an ultimate mystery, God's sense of humor is that God leaves clues everywhere. And when you start finding them, then you come face to face with the mystery. And you, if you don't like the word God, you can just say, well, there is quite a mystery going on, because even an atheist has to confront a mystery every day called <laughs> the mirror. <laughs> yeah. 
So Greg, I, I think this is very, very interesting and very important. And, and as we've both found in our own life, some of these things seem kind of way out there. But if, if everybody just does what we just described, start looking into your childhood, looking into your likes, your dislikes, look into where you're at now, how you got there, who you found so repulsive that they pushed you in a given direction that ultimately brought you to where you're at, then you'll start seeing these patterns. And if you look at your life and you say, well, I don't like where I'm at right now, then the rest of the podcast gets to be very important, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't you share with us what the four survival archetypes are and why explana uh, exploration of these is so essential to our healing journey? I think this is probably one of the most important concepts for people to understand because there's nobody that can escape these four archetypes. I mean, I've never met anybody in my life that managed to escape them. Well, you can't escape them because if you're in this physical body, you are trying to survive. And if you're trying to survive, you're going to have to use survival archetypes to do so. So the survival archetypes are kind of like the four legs of a table that kind of support you in times of stress, in times of crisis, in times of Really, any time you move into some sort of stress response, some sort of life or death situation, or perceived life or death situation, which as a child is pretty much any time you feel like you're losing connection. So the four survival archetypes... And relationship. And relationship. I would just throw in, and any time you go into a relationship, you know, we're all going to have some degree of harmony... And there's going to be some degree of something that challenges us. You know, in our relationship, we had a lot of harmony, but I challenged you in lots of ways. And you challenged me in lots of ways, not negative ways. You challenged me to help you resolve your challenges. And one of the jobs of a therapist and a shaman is to bring the patient into themselves and allow themselves to experience the life of the patient or the client and go through a digestive process. So in my working relationship with you, when you were my client or patient, however you want to term it, I had to take Greg into myself. I had to take his OCD into myself. I had to take all the challenges he was going through with food, with women, with everything that was going on in his life. And so I had to absorb your challenges and work with them inside of myself because my life isn't your life, even though I may have had similar experiences, by working with you, I have to create space in myself to allow Greg to live in me. And then I use my skills as a therapist and a life coach to say, okay, if, if, if I could give Greg guidance on how to, how to resolve what I feel happening inside of me when I let Greg inside of me, this is what I would share with him. And that process may or may not work. So there's always this this exchange, this two-way exchange, right? And that's really the nature of love is this giving and receiving, giving and receiving and learning and growing and refining. And that process just goes on. I think that's inherent in all relationships. So whenever you're entering into a relationship, not only with persons, but with places and things, then you're going to have an environment where survival archetypes are going to be at play because you can be addicted to a home 
that isn't serving you. You can be, for example, maybe you've got a home that's big and beautiful, but you can't afford it. So it's killing you financially. And even though you love your home, it's ruining your ability to have any freedom because you are working yourself to death to pay for this big home. Maybe all your kids have moved out and you don't really need this big home, but you may have this attachment to it. So you, you ultimately, as, as we'll discuss, find yourself prostituting your life to pay for this icon of who you think you are. But being that person isn't really ideal anymore because your soul is trying to say it's time for you to become more, not stay stuck. So the, my only point is just that survival archetypes extend themselves to all relationships and not only with people, but places and things. One of the most amazing Bioptimizers products I've ever used is Biome Breakthrough, which used to be called Leaky Gut Guardian. I can honestly say I use it every single day. I have a morning routine. I put a scoop in with two fresh squeezed limes. I put a little bit of other ingredients that I like in there. And I'll tell you what, if any of you have read my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and you know how to read your poops, well, Biome Breakthrough makes for some really nice poopy policemen. I've got Wade here to tell us what's so unique about it, but I want to tell you right up front, I love this stuff. I don't go anywhere without it, and I keep a lot of it on hand so I don't run out. So Wade, what is it that's making that product so effective? Well, first and foremost, we have to look at what's happening in the population at large. And Harvard just released an extensive study demonstrating that virtually everyone has some degree of leaky gut. And that means the gut permeability of our intestines is leaking toxins into the system, which are causing immunoresponses. Now, some people that's sneezing or allergies, but then it can move on to more inflammatory conditions. And anybody that's checked out your work understands this. The question is, how do you actually seal the gut so that you can stop this from happening? And we have a partnership with Birch International University in Croatia, where we have a team of PhD scientists working on this. And we've been able to combine a unique product called IGY Max, which is a patented egg-based product that enhances your gut health and reverses the damage that can be done by all these toxins that are leading to leaky gut. But when we combined it with some specific probiotics, they work synergistically together to be able to repair leaky gut and literally hours as opposed to going through an extensive protocol. Now, we can't stop ourselves from experiencing all the toxins in our world or food, air, water, you name it. It's coming from everywhere nowadays. So what we have to look at is, is well, how do we manage the damage, if you will, that we are taking, even if we're following, you know, the highest levels of, of food hygiene and, you know, conscientiousness. And so What's happened is Biome Breakthrough has been able to be proven in the lab and in folks. Research papers will be coming out very soon to demonstrate this. And that's why we've called it Biome Breakthrough. We're able to actually repair and stop the leaky gut from happening with the combination of IGY Max. It's a unique set of probiotics. And we're happy to deliver it to people. We're very excited. We can try it. It's a money back guarantee. If you don't feel better, if your poops aren't better, if you don't say, wow, my, my inflammatory conditions in my gut are going down. Uh, you get your money back. So it's really easy to get. You go to biomebreakthrough.com slash living40. You'll get put in Paul 10. You get a 10% discount on this and any other products that we supply at Bioptimizers. I can't recommend it enough. I love this stuff. And it actually tastes good too, which is unique. So thank you very much once again for making such an amazing product. I'm really excited to be able to offer it to everybody. Enjoy Biome Breakthrough. I think it's important for the whole family. 
you know, the survival archetypes are there to help you survive, but not thrive. Right. So a lot of times when we're playing <laughs> out the survival archetypes, we're doing what we think we have to do to stay alive, either literally or metaphorically. But a lot of times that's usually at the expense of our own health, at the expense of our own freedom, at the expense of our own empowerment. And these archetypal forces are really instilled very early on in our life. Usually by the time we're seven to 10 years old, we've encountered the victim archetype. We've encountered a situation in which we had to self-sabotage for our own safety. There was a time in which we had to prostitute ourselves for our own security. So these are very deep formative forces that formed at a very early age. A lot of them can be learned patterns too, you know, from parents, teachers, kind of things that you observe. But they're really situations in which, as a child, you've, you felt somewhat threatened. And there was a moment in time where you said, I have to give my power away in order for me to survive this situation. Whether it's you feeling victimized for some reason, you feeling attacked for some reason, and you say, okay, I need to do this to ensure my own survival. But the issue that you run into is that may have served you in that moment, but in that moment, you created what we were saying earlier, a contract with that archetype, which is a pattern that you continue to play out over and over again over the course of your journey until it creates enough pain in your life that you have to reassess it. That's where your teaching of the pain teacher comes into play. And a lot of times the pain teacher arrives when you've played out the disempowered or shadow expression of the archetype enough times that your body, your soul, this feedback mechanism is saying to you, all right, Greg, it's time for you to reassess this contract. Do you want to continue to play the victim to get your emotional needs met? Do you want to continue to sabotage yourself out of the fear of getting attacked? Do you want to continue to prostitute yourself just to ensure some guaranteed outcome or someone's approval. And a lot of the pain in our life is when we're being called to renegotiate that contract. So the four survival archetypes are the child, the victim, the saboteur, and the prostitute. And we'll get into each one in more depth individually. But the way I like to almost explain it is a lot of these archetypes are almost like your inner child survival team. Each archetype is kind of like playing a certain role to ensure the child archetype survival, the child archetype security, safety, and what it feels like it has to do to get some sort of connection, love, or emotional need met. So those are really the, the ways in which they show up and the healing process is really just our relationship with upgrading and renegotiating some of the old ways, which brought us safety and security, but obviously at the expense of freedom, health, vitality, and empowerment. Yes. I think you have a slightly different approach than I do in the, in the survival archetypes with a child, because I 
have the child in the core archetypes because we are always born with a father and a mother and we're the child. So when I, when I use the concept of survival archetypes, I orient towards the negative expressions such as eternal child, nature child, wounded child, uh, abandoned child, only because my system already has the child in at the core level. But so, you know, I know you understand the derivations of the child. So uh, which would you like to start with and, and take us through these four? You want to start with the child? Yeah, we'll start with the child. And before I get into that, it's important to understand that all archetypes have light and shadow. You know, so there's no archetype that's just light and there's no archetype that's just shadow. They all have that balance of light and shadow. So as we go through it, we'll kind of identify both sides of the coin. So the child archetype, the light side of the child is our playfulness, our youthfulness, our beginner's mind. The child has deep curiosity. The child is able to see everything as a new novel experience and is very present. The child also is very creative and holds a lot of the gifts that we're here to bring forth. So the, the inner child is really an important thing that we all stay connected to because it's the source of creativity and curiosity but, and playfulness. But where we get into trouble with the shadow side is where the child archetype has patterns of learned helplessness and powerlessness and outsourcing self-responsibility, outsourcing the power of choice, looking for some mother or father authority figure to take care of us. So the child archetype in the shadow expression is when we're staying a child and we're projecting responsibility, power, and choice outside of us. Mm -hmm. Which is coupled with neediness. In When you're in a relationship of any type, as an adult with someone who's still acting out the child, there's always a, uh, a level of neediness where they are not self-empowered. They're always wanting someone else to solve their problems or rescue them or feed them or protect them. So it, if you get stuck in the child archetype when you should be an adult, it, it becomes very challenging to navigate relationships with adults because the effect that it has on the adult is they don't have a co-contributor or co-creator. They have a, a co-dependent. And this is why, for example, in all uh, rites of passage ceremonies, they had to completely get you out of the child archetype to become capable of protecting the tribe, feeding the tribe, and being an adult because there's not an infinite supply of resources out there. So you can only feed so many children before you have a deficit in the balance of how much consumption there is by children and how much work has to be done by adults to maintain the balance of life. What's happened in our culture is that we've, as you're very aware, we have so many people that should be adult contributors to society and to culture and to the world that are still living in the child archetype, that they're staying codependent upon others around them. And this leads to, for example, an exorbitant misuse of, of social services or of welfare. And so it can become so extremely costly for corporations and governments and organizations and companies 
uh, to pay all these insurances and have so many claims against them that we actually disable ourselves as individuals and we disable our companies and we disable sports teams and we disable relationships because there's a certain point at which the child archetype has to transition in my system into a warrior, into somebody who has a set of values and is clear on what they're willing to live for and willing to die for, or you end up just with a whole bunch of children, which makes you very susceptible to the dangers of parental figures that have their own ideas about what they want to do with you. And oftentimes those can be very conflicting and very painful when you realize that some of these ideas are not often grounded in love or nurture or care or concern, but profitability and manipulation and serving the greed of whoever the father figure or mother figure turns out to be, which, you know, an example is the president or the prime minister of a country or the leader of a religion or of a cult or any number of things. And so, you know, I would just say that as you hear this discussion of the child archetype, it's not just for children that are children, it's adults that are still being children, and it's one of the most disabling things we have happening in the world at this very moment. Yeah, and there's different variations, like you were saying, of the child archetype that some people might connect to and help them understand their own specific patterning. For example, the eternal child. Like you've talked a lot about the eternal child, which the light side of the eternal child is actually kind of staying young in spirit and young in heart and always staying connected to your childlike nature. But there's a difference between being childlike and childish. You know, the eternal yes. child is childish when it expresses in the shadow. There's the magical child that can see the beauty and potential in everything, but also is not rooted in reality. So it has these fantasy ideas and it doesn't really understand the process that one must go through or something like hard work. You know, it thinks money grows on trees and things like that. So there's all these different variations of the child, the orphan child that feels abandoned but is very independent, or the adult child that loses connection to its childhood and its childlike nature because it had to develop a lot of adult responsibilities as a child. So learning some of these different variations, which I share in the course, will allow you to deeper connect with what your own unique child archetype signature is, which then you can see how it might be playing out in the rest of your life today, like you said, even if you're an adult. Yes. So is that, the, is that what you wanted to share on the child? Yeah. Great. So you want to go, which one do you want to go into next, victim, saboteur, or prostitute? Let's go to the victim. Busy, busy archetype. <laughs> yeah, this one's, yeah, this one's got a lot to it. So the victim archetype, once again, light and shadow, a lot of times people only see the shadow of the victim. But the light side of the victim is acknowledging when you are a victim, when you are being victimized, and learning how to empower yourself to set boundaries. So a lot of healing the inner victim is healing the need for boundaries setting clear boundaries in relationship. Because the truth is, most people feel victimized when a boundary is being crossed. For example, someone's a victim of physical abuse when a physical boundary is being crossed. Someone's a victim of emotional abuse when an emotional boundary is being crossed. 
So there's a difference between being a victim and playing the victim, right? Mm -hmm. Being a victim is saying, wow, I'm being abused in this marriage. I need to get out of this marriage. So the victim empowers itself to take action and make a change and seek safety, right? So that's the light side of the victim. To say I'm not a victim when you're being abused would be ridiculous. You want to acknowledge the role and now take action and do something about it. The shadow side is what most people are aware of, which is when we're playing the victim. And playing the victim is paradoxically how we gain a sense of power and control by playing a powerless role, right? The victim represents one's relationship with power. And we play a powerless victim role as paradoxically a power play of feeling more in control. Like, for example, I said as a child, I would play the victim through using pain and illness to get my emotional needs met from my father. So I'm playing a powerless victim role to attract a rescuer, which gives me the love, compassion, empathy, and attention that I'm looking for. So the victim really represents your relationship with your own power and where you use a powerless role as a way of getting certain needs met. And this is a big thing for people on the healing journey because a lot of people have learned to get emotional needs met through the victim archetype. And one of the ways we do it is by attracting a rescuer, which allows us to feel significant, you know, and a big thing for people to take a look at is what's called the victim triangle. And the victim triangle is something that actually shows up in almost every area of our life. And actually every industry uses the victim triangle as a way of kind of luring us into whatever it is that they're trying to sell. You know, an example of that would be take kind of like the industrial side of Western medicine, the pharmaceutical side, where there's three archetypes. There's the victim, there's the villain, and there's the rescuer. So you have some pain in your body. Your pain is the villain. You're the victim of it. And this pill is the rescuer. Or there's a virus going around that's the villain. You're the victim. Mm -hmm. And this jab is the rescuer. Or you're depressed or you're unhappy. So your unhappiness or depression is the villain. You're the victim of it. And this solution that I'm selling you is the rescuer. So you see how literally every industry is set to appeal to your victim archetype, your powerlessness. And now we give you a solution which allows you to feel rescued, which allows you to feel now more whole. It's really important to see these patterns so you can empower yourself with the awareness of when this is showing up in your life. And, you know, healing the victim archetype, like I said, is one of the absolute essentials to the healing process because the victim is one of the key archetypes that gets a lot of its emotional needs met through pain, illness, or disease. So if you haven't yet healed the victim, it's very hard to get rid of illness because there's too much gain in holding on to it. One of the things too about the victim archetype is that as long as you're living it out, you are stuck in a codependent relationship, either with the doctor, with the drug, with the rescuer. So it has a um, stagnating effect on psychological growth and development 
personal growth and development, spiritual growth and development, professional growth and development. So that's, you know, whenever we're in codependent relationships, we're not in co-creative relationships. A, co a codependent relationship, to give an analogy that should make it pretty clear, most of us in school did a three-legged race. You remember doing a three-legged race? Yep. Well, having a codependent relationship is like being in a three-legged race with somebody that doesn't want to run or keeps trying to go in a different direction. And so you're, you're never going to win the race and you can't get to where you want to go because there's not a common understanding of a mutual objective and therefore mutual participation. And so what happens is the love becomes sex and violence love. And, and, and sex here, here really relates to polarity. It means there's a lot of polarity. Greg's trying to go in one direction. Paul's trying to go in another. That creates a lot of polarity. And unfortunately, whenever there's a lot of polarity in relationships, there's also a high incidence of injury in relationships. And, you know, when there's a high incidence of injury in relationships, then there's also a high incidence of falling into the same victim pattern and just drilling yourself down until you're in a, a real crisis. And sometimes, unfortunately, that goes on until a person commits suicide because they can't see any way out of it because everywhere they look, they've got a hall of mirrors inside of their head. And every one of those mirrors has an image of them being in some way trapped. Yep. So the essence of the victim, if you want to look for where is this showing up in my life, is anytime you feel like life is happening to you, that's an expression of the victim archetype. Anytime you're falling into patterns of self-pity, that's the victim archetype. Anytime you're blaming, blaming is always an expression of the victim archetype. And anytime you fall into patterns of shutting down, shutting down is also an expression of the victim archetype. So, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, victimhood is anything less than 100% self-responsibility, right? So the victim also loves to outsource responsibility, just like the child does. So healing the victim archetype is really about setting boundaries, really having healthy boundaries in relationship. It's about taking 100% ownership, 100% self-responsibility for your experience. And then it's about seeing life as happening for you rather than to you. And once you can see each experience as something that you've brought into your life to serve your healing, growth, and evolution, then you can actually start to heal the inner victim. So I think those are some of the key ingredients for people to see when it comes to that archetype. Yeah, one the, I wrote a note there just because I, I think there's something else I'd like to add that's quite important. And that is that the victim archetype is also important from a positive perspective because there are villains out there. There are sorcerers out there. There are people that do not have your best interest at heart. So when you feel yourself being victimized, then you will find that it activates other archetypes in you. And so, for example, if I feel myself being victimized, it, the first thing that happens, it activates the warrior in me to say, wait a minute, you're, you're trespassing on my boundaries here, or you're not holding to our agreement, which could be like the U.S. Constitution, for example, 
So when people start trespassing on freedom of speech, then they are victimizing us. And so at that point, we, we have a choice to empower ourselves. If you fall into the, the child archetype, then you're going to become defenseless and you're going to need a rescue, which leaves you very susceptible because many villains masquerade as rescuers. So I think what I'm pointing out is that the survival archetypes are not only there to give you the experience of these different ex uh, experiences from being a prostitute to being a victim or to having someone sabotage you, they're there to also help us recognize why we don't want to do it to other people. Because once we've experienced it, we realize, wow, it's not fun having someone sabotage you or victimize you. But the point I was driving at previous was each of these archetypes in their negative expression has the potential to and should awaken us to an optimal archetypal response. For example, it may activate the warrior, but it could also activate the communicator. In other words, I don't want to go to war and be violent before I've tried nonviolent means because there's no real positive outcome when people start getting hurt. It doesn't typically lead to peace. So we, we might say, wait a minute, the warrior in me is standing up, but how can I express my wants, feelings, and needs non-violently and establish the fact that I'm not just going to sit here and play dead? So uh, the, another key point I'm driving is all these archetypes have interrelationships. There's actually no such thing as a pure archetype. For, for example, you can never find a mother that doesn't carry the influence of her father inside of her. So there you have what Jung calls archetypal contamination. There is no such thing as a pure archetype. Even our beliefs about God are often very convoluted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we know that. And, you know, the, the introduction to the victim archetype is the first time you felt victimized. The first time you felt victimized was your first introduction to that experience and therefore that archetype. So that's at the moment where a contract was signed as to when I feel victimized, this is what I have to do. You know, for you, it might be when I feel victimized, I need to step into the warrior. When someone else feels victimized, they need to step into, like you said, the communicator. Other people, like for example, I felt victimized as a child let's say when I didn't perform optimally. So I might develop a pattern of perfectionism to protect yes. my inner victim, right? Yeah. So a lot of these archetypes work in clusters, but they're all there to protect the part of you that felt victimized for the first time. So that's an important thing to explore because then you can see some of the patterns and how they're continuing to play out today. That's all very true. And there's another element to that. A lot of the We'll stick with the victim. A lot of the victimizing can begin all the way in utero, right from inception. For example, the, the neonate, the soul in the developing fetus, may feel that mom or dad doesn't want it. So it's already feeling abandoned or rejected. And so it may grow up as a child having this sense of sadness or resent towards mom and dad because it doesn't feel loved and supported, but it doesn't know why it's acting these behaviors out because they're in the unconscious. And so why I bring this up is because this is why looking into our unconscious and using meditation practices, journaling practices, 
art therapy, shadow work, looking at family history and family dynamics, looking at the, you know, the traits that, you know, how did our parents get parented, for example. Oftentimes it's easy to really get pissed off at your parents, but when you grow enough awareness and you, you start looking into how mom and dad got parented, you can see that they're still unconscious and they're paradoxically acting out toward their own children, the very things that were so painful to them, but they don't realize they're doing it. So that's why beginning to be aware of these archetypal dynamics is extremely important because you really can't achieve an authentic sense of agency and freedom in yourself until you become aware of where you've got all your power being bled out, you know? Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable, and I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn, and then it's processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. Save 15% by going to paleovalley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. That's P-A-L-E-O valley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. No promo code is required. Last thing I'll share, which you inspired me and it kind of came to mind is a lot of times the victim is always projecting the villain externally, not realizing that a lot of the time it's really a projection of something happening within us. This is the essence of shadow work. You know, for example, I've been aware recently where, you know, we take censor censorship and freedom of speech, like you were saying earlier. I've been censored on Instagram over the last couple of years by sharing certain things related to COVID. And the victim in me gets really riled up and projects, you know, Instagram and the social media giants and all of them as the villain. And then one day I'm sitting in quiet and I'm like, no one has censored me more than I've probably censored me. So over the course of my life, I'm, pro I'm now projecting Instagram as the villain, not realizing that I've done that to myself way more than Instagram has ever done that to me. So I'm projecting the villain outside of me, not realizing that it's simply a reflection of the villain within, which is where I had to censor myself over the course of my life to preserve my safety, right? But that does not give them the right to continue to victimize you. No, of course not. Through censorship. So you, we, we need to be careful. We don't justify villain behavior by saying, oh, I'm worse to myself because we each have our own responsibility to how we manage our relationship to ourselves. That's our free will. And social contracts are there to help minimize collateral damage. 
because if everybody was as mean to everybody else as they are to themselves, we've all been dead a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. yeah, no, it's not condoning any of that. It's just showing that the world is very often a mirror. It's usually oh, it's totally, yeah, it's mirroring totally mirror. back to you. Another example, I'll come back to the victim triangle with the victim, the villain, and the rescuer of how all of these archetypes will literally show up right inside of you. And I'll give you an example. As, where, else, where else could they be? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, a lot of your listeners might be um, holistic health practitioners or health coaches. I hope so. So I'll give you an example of how this will show up as a coach and how I've seen this show up, early, especially earlier on in my career, where someone comes to you in pain and you see them as the victim. And you see yourself until you've developed enough as their rescuer who's responsible to take their pain away. And you start to, you know, implement all your coaching practices and tools and things like that. And months later, they're still in pain. And all of a sudden, you start judging yourself. I'm not good enough as a coach. I'm not skilled enough as a therapist. I'm not experienced enough as a practitioner. So you actually take on the role of the villain now victimizing yourself mm -hmm. for not being able to take that person's pain away. So you see how you literally went from rescuer to villain to victim all within one situation, all within yourself. So all of these archetypes are all playing themselves out right inside of you, but the victim very often likes to project it externally. And you can also, in a therapist, uh, doctor, coach relationship, you can reject your own villain or victim and project it onto the patient or the client and say, well, the reason you're not getting any better is because you keep copping out on yourself or you, you, yeah. you, you know, you can tell yourself a story that they're not doing their part. It couldn't have anything to do with whether or not you're doing a good job as a coach or a therapist. And so there, there is, you see, one of the things that, that I hope people are realizing is there is subtle nuances and, and a lot of these things are happening at the unconscious level but what's so important about a podcast like this and about a course like you offer is that you can't see something that you're unconscious of that's why it's called unconscious but once you start identifying the patterns and you know where to look for them then you can say okay right now i'm feeling frustrated with this client because i don't think they're really participating yet they're blaming it on me, let's say, that the program's not working. So if you're aware of it and you understand which of these archetypes are in play, then to put it in a very simple situation, if you have some, uh, you know, if you have a, a bolt you've got to take off of an engine to remove a part, you know, you've got to know which wrench to reach for, because if you use the wrong wrench, you won't get the right result. So understanding the archetypal dynamics within yourself and within your relationships helps you know which wrench and metaphor to reach for. Like, how do I approach this? How do I communicate this in, in a way that doesn't make things worse? What questions do I ask to help create awareness so that either the questions I ask myself or the questions I ask the other are actually going to help resolve the situation? And, and, and I know you know this, but this, you know, I've been working on this stuff for a very long time and I never stop learning. And I, I never stop learning about myself and I never stop learning about, about and through relationships because ultimately 
we come into a world that's quite heavily encased in programming, and it's quite a journey to get out of it. And then there's the other problem is, is that the more free you become, we can say the more enlightened you become, the more other people tend not to like you, just which is the classic archetype of the fool in tarot. Nobody likes the person dancing naked in the street with a lampshade on their head because it's not that they are naked and having fun. It's that most people are so frustrated at themselves that they're not that free that it's easier to project on to the other person and say, well, look at that idiot. They should be put in jail because I don't want to look at their penis or whatever. So you see these archetypes actually, in a way, they almost guarantee evolution. You know, even if it's not in this lifetime, they guarantee evolution because, as you said, the archetype does not have a polarity, so it contains the positive and the negative within itself, which ultimately means the archetype itself is neutral. And and Jung says, you know, the archetype of the mother or the father does not have any attachment to how good of a mother or a father you are. It's really the psychic container that allows the evolution of mothers and fathers to take place. But it's never going to step down there and give you a report card and say, hey, you're out of line down there. You're not archetyping very well because all of it turns out to be experience within consciousness or God, which is within us. And you can't have real growth. You can't have real knowledge and you cannot cultivate wisdom without experience. So the, the you could say that the archetypal structure guarantees evolution of, of the self. Yeah. And it brings to mind, you know, one of the reasons why exploring archetypes like we do in the course and we're doing in this podcast is so supportive is it's actually a very user-friendly way of doing inner work because you realize that everyone has an inner victim. Everyone has a saboteur. So it becomes less personal. And when it's less personal, the ego has less defense mechanisms up against it when it realizes that, hey, everyone plays these patterns out in their own unique way. So it's not something that I feel threatened by to explore. So I think that's important for people to see. I think it's very important. And I think there's another aspect to it. And that is that once we realize that our own healing is also healing our family and healing our friends. Because anytime we make, for example, you're my student, you are my patient, and here you are teaching courses, and there's a high likelihood that you're going to say something that's going to make me go, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. So ultimately, what I'm saying is it's not just for ourselves, but every time we heal, we're actually giving a gift to the whole because we're modeling possibility to them. We're showing them that it is possible to get out of dysfunctional relationships. It is possible to learn to love yourself. It is possible to overcome seemingly impossible obstacles and realizing that we were the one generating the obstacle. And how many people are doing that? You know, billions. So I think it's, for me, it's inspirational and it always has been to know that my work and my evolution of my own relationship with myself or of myself is actually evolution of the whole. And that's the only part that I can actually take responsibility for and have complete agency over. I can't force my mother to heal her wounds. I can't force my friends to heal their wounds, but I can take responsibility for mine and when I shift, every time we heal, and I think you've probably experienced this, 
Every time we heal one of these things, our resonant vibration rises because we're less bound to the inertia of polarity, to the inertia of shadow. Therefore, whenever we're in the presence of somebody else, we're elevating them without even saying a word because we are actually a higher frequency being. And so just this is why people love gurus. They, they, without even saying a word, they can feel the love. They can feel the high vibration. And sometimes just being around people like that can trigger a transformation in somebody just because the frequency shift is enough to knock you out of some of your patterns. Yeah, I think that's really important. And you, you highlighted you know, the fact that all relationships are really an inner process. And anytime you're in relationship with someone else, you're really just in relationship with that part of yourself that's engaging that other individual. And archetypes really give you an opportunity to see those patterns and give a language to it that's more clear. And also, it's a beautiful thing in relationships to explore because when you can see relationships archetypally, you don't take things as personally. And so to do relationship work through the lens of archetypes can also be helpful in that way as well. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, there's an old saying, if all our troubles were hung on a line, you could take yours and I would take mine. Meaning that we each, when we, when we recognize the impersonal nature of archetypes, then say we're in relationship counseling because we're, there's challenges between us that are somehow disabling the relationship, we can... We can say, okay, let's each look at our victim archetypes and see what we find. Instead of saying, well, you've got a real victim archetype problem. I, you need to go see a counselor. We can do it together and say, you know, and then let's look at some of these patterns in our family and see maybe where this came from. And inevitably, we're both going to have our own findings. You know, we're all going to find our own stuff, but we're, we're going to realize, wow, everybody's got this stuff going on. And I'm just grateful that I can become conscious of it so I could work with it. Yep, absolutely. So we've got the, the, the victim. We've talked about the child. You want to talk about the prostitute or the um, saboteur? Maybe the saboteur is about right next door holding hands to the victim. Yeah, let's go to the saboteur. So the saboteur is probably the one that people most resonate with are able to see very clearly because everyone has patterns of self-sabotage that they might be aware of. You know, it's sometimes it's a little bit harder for people to see their inner victim or their inner prostitute, but the saboteur is usually something that people are much more aware of within themselves. So the saboteur is really on a deep level your relationship with truth. And the saboteur is the archetype that is there to protect you from truth. It protects you from your own power, and it protects you from what feels inconvenient to your ego. For example, you might have a truth inside of you that says, I don't enjoy my career, and I'd rather be doing this instead. But the saboteur gives you all the reasons why that's not a good idea. Or, this, or your, your soul says, you know, it's time to part ways in this relationship, and your journey is taking you elsewhere. But the saboteur and the ego says that's not a good idea because of all of these reasons, mm -hmm. right? So the saboteur is always protecting you from some truth that feels inconvenient to your ego's sense of safety, security, and control. The saboteur is always trying to keep you connected to what's familiar and protect you from the unknown. 
And on a deep level, the the saboteur knows that when you step into your power, everything changes. And when you step into your power, your life gets turned upside down. You know, an, ex- <laughs> an example of that is, let's say you're a chronic people pleaser. And one of your patterns of self-sabotage is trying to please everybody, saying yes to everybody. And a lot of people that you're in relationship with are getting their emotional needs met by you being the people pleaser. And then all of a sudden, you start saying no. All of a sudden, you start setting boundaries. And all of a sudden, people start saying, I really liked the old version of him better. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that, your relationships are turned upside down. The saboteur knows that's going to happen when you step into your power. So what it does is it tries to keep the status quo because it keeps you connected to what's familiar, right? So the saboteur is protecting you from truth and it's protecting you from your own power. You're going to add something there? It can go the other way too. Let's say you're sabotaging your responsibility to provide in a relationship, say a spousal relationship. So maybe you got laid off and you're just dragging your ass and, and watching TV and not co-contributing. You're, 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 you're putting a drain on your partner. So when you heal the saboteur, now all of a sudden you step into yourself and you go get yourself a job or you, or you, you contribute to the relationship. So you got your power back, but you also have more to give into the relationship. So it can do what you said, but it can also have the opposite effect depending on the dynamics of the relationship. And now you're actually, now you're actually coming more into harmony with your partner and they go, you know, I'm just metaphor them and say, thank God you healed that saboteur because, you know, I was getting pretty angry. I was feeling pretty loaded up here, you know? And I think that's kind of the magic of an archetype. You know, they are very magical. Um, They can, they're very dynamic and, and they can, you know, they can really create a lot of um, nurture and support and uh, fulfillment, but they can also rototill relationships. But to, to go back to your point, when that happens, what you described, that's almost always absolutely necessary because those are usually relationships that aren't healthy for you anyhow. So it pushes you into your independence. Now you really have a choice. Am I going to become um, whole unto myself? Am I going to take responsibility for loving myself respecting myself, acknowledging myself, making meaning and value for myself? Or do I need all these painful relationships so I get a little something out of it and I can continue to sidestep my responsibility to myself? Yeah. The saboteur is also deeply connected to what's called secondary gain. And secondary gain is where you're benefiting from your pain. It could be you're getting emotional needs met from your pain. It could be you're getting paid time off from a job you don't enjoy. You know, so whenever you're in some sort of healing process and you find yourself sabotaging in certain ways, the first thing you want to ask yourself is what part of me is benefiting from this illness? What part of me is benefiting by staying in pain? And what part of me is actually getting some sort of need met? by holding on to this. That's really one of the most important questions with the saboteur is related to that concept of secondary gain. Yes. I wrote a little note, you know, there's a thing called illness behavior. um, And it's very common in, in rehabilitation clinics. And 
Illness behavior is what happens when somebody becomes so identified with their illness that they're afraid to heal at a conscious and unconscious level because so much of their life is now built around the illness and the um, secondary gain they get. I get to use handicapped parking spots. People take care of me. They want to support me. People are willing to lend me money and bring me food. I mean, there's a yep. long list of it, right? So, you know, when I was, when I owned a physical therapy clinic, there's, there's a lot of study that I did because whenever you're working with insurance companies or workman's compensation, you get people that are milking the system. And I personally do not enjoy working with that type of patient. So I studied books that show you how to do tests specifically designed to identify if illness behavior is at work. So for example, instead of a straight leg raise test, which would normally aggravate a disc, you tell the patient, well, if I lower your leg and your disc is injured, it'll probably increase the pain, which would be impossible based on the mechanics of the test. So all of a sudden they're going, oh, it hurts, it hurts. But you, you know, so you do, you can run several of these tests and it tell, gives you a real indication of whether or not you're dealing with illness behavior. And so that's one of the problems is, is that if people get too buried in these archetypes, they, they can actually get lost in this sort of uh, pseudo identity and it, can, and it can really screw their life up. Yeah. And a lot of these patterns go back to very early childhood. And oh, yeah. a lot of, you know, for example, let's say as a child, both your parents worked. But anytime you were sick from school, one of your parents stayed home with you. So that child actually develops this belief system that when I'm ill, when I possibly am sabotaging my health, I get more love and connection with a parent, right? Another example of that could be that when I'm sick or when I'm injured or when I'm in pain, my parents get along better. You know, a lot of times they live in constant state of conflict, but when there's something going on with the child, they kind of band together and they get along a little bit more. So there's less, less conflict in the house. So you could see all of these little kind of like subtle parts of us that benefit from illness. And these, you know, go back to the time we're, you know, four or five years old. And you, you can see this in other ways being used against people. For example... How many dentist offices have you been in that give you candy when you go get your teeth worked on? How many times have we seen on television, if you get your, whatever they call it these days, inoculation, you will get an ice cream or beer or some kind of reward. So really, when you understand this whole concept, you can see that it can also be used very effectively against you because it's a conditioning response. It's like a Pavlovian response. Do this and you get fed. Do this, you get money. Do this, you get candy. Against people to condition them to get a specific response. If you don't have this level of awareness, you can fall into the trap and not realizing that your free pizza dinner, your ice cream, or your candy is actually conditioning you to stay in a victim behavior and therefore sabotage your own life. Yeah. Another thing that, you know, sometimes people have to look at, like you're saying, is how you're sabotaging others. Sure it is. And sometimes that's harder to look at than how you're actually sabotaging yourself. Like, for example, I've worked with clients whose parents I met with and really wanted to support their child's healing process. So maybe they're paying for the coaching or whatever it might be. And 
maybe the client's struggling with anxiety or some sort of physical pain or whatever it is. And let's say I start teaching them Tai Chi Mm -hmm. or I start teaching them how to use tarot or oracle cards. (laughs) Sounds familiar. (laughs) And and let's say their parents are strict Catholics. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Right? I've had clients' parents say to them, you know, if you keep doing that Tai Chi or that Tarot, I'm going to ask you to leave the home and I'm going to stop paying for your coaching. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, they were actually getting better yes. <laughs> by doing those practices. So you realize that the parent might say, I want what's best for my child. <laughs> as long as it makes but me. They don't realize, <laughs> <laughs> but they don't realize that they're actually willing to sabotage their child in a moment's notice if something goes against a belief system. Well, that that's very true of sexual orientation. I mean, how many parents just, you know, blow a gasket when they find out that their daughter is a lesbian or their son's gay, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, love is thrown out the window. So these are very complex dynamics, but they're very, very real. And I would add to that in the scenario you've given as dark as that looks, it could be just what it takes to, to push that person into their maturation process as an adult. In other words, they, it's, it, it's just what they need to get kicked out the door to have to start taking care of themselves. There's a, real, there's a real mystery to all this, and I'll bring up a Buddhist teaching story to point it out. And I won't tell the whole story because it's quite long. You've probably heard it before. Uh, the story is about a, a man, and he, his son's riding his horse. And he falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And all the neighbors come to him and say, oh, it's so sad what happened to your son. He, he could be crippled. He, he won't be able to go to school. And all the old man says is, is that so? And then another event happens and they come back and they have another story. And he says, is that so? Well, then a war breaks out and everybody gets drafted. But because the kid's got a broken leg, he doesn't have to go. So everyone comes and says, oh, you're so lucky that your son broke his leg. Now he's lucky, you see. And he says, is that so? So the, the point is that the wise man is never making a judgment. He's simply saying, is that so? He, he's saying there's a greater mystery going on here than I can ever really objectify. So he doesn't let himself fall into a judgment. He just observes and allows the process to unfold because we never really ultimately know. We don't even know oftentimes until we die who we are, which is crazy, but it's true. So um, I think for the listeners, what I'm saying is the ego always wants to connect the dots and try to make meaning in such a way that it makes us feel safe or gives us the sense of reassurance that things aren't going to change tomorrow. But a deeper realization is, is that so? (laughs) Yeah, it's easy for us to slip into victim role. But, you know, one of a few months back, I was at a retreat with Matt Kahn and he was talking about how the soul is always connected to life's way or the way and the ego is always connected to my way. And a lot of times life's way or the way, which is really for the evolution of the soul, is what goes completely against my way. It's like the old saying, spirituality is the ego's biggest disappointment. Yes. So as Steiner says, spiritual de- most people avoid spiritual development because it's total chaos. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. I thought I'd take a minute to sing you a little song. 
Dr. Quiet, she is yin. Know how she loves to bring energy in. She teaches you how to rest so your energy is always at its best. Hey! And I want to tell you a little secret. You know how I support Dr. Quiet? I use Organifi Gold, and it does some magic to help you sleep deeper and restore better so you can get up and be a freedom fighter first thing in the morning and all through the day. And I got Drew Canoli, who created the product right here, right now, to tell us why it works so well. Drew, what's so unique about Organifi Gold except the fact that my kids won't stop asking for it? I love this song. Thank you. And I think if we were DJing this, we would do Rishi. Because Rishi, full spectrum, eight to one, beta glucans, knock you out. The queen of mushroom. Rishi is one of the most powerful things we can put in our body, especially at night. Helps restore, revitalize. Great for the liver. Yeah. So while we sleep, not only are we restoring and repairing the cells, but we're detoxing in the most effective way possible. Yes. And it doesn't have to taste bad. In fact, it could be something you crave. Yeah. And that's Organifi Gold. It tastes like Autumn had a baby with a marshmallow. Every time I have it, it just knocks me out. I've literally tracked it with my whoop, my aura ring, yeah. and it adds another hour to an hour and a half of deep sleep. That's great. Ramen deep every single night. You know what's also really cool? Rishi is a wise man. Mm. It's not only the name of a mushroom, but a Rishi is a wise man. Oh, true story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's absolutely true. I'm not so, pulling your leg. And how much wisdom have you and I gained from night school? A Dream lot time. of wisdom. Yep. Yes, and you gain a lot when you can't sleep. You go, what am I doing wrong? And how do I get it fixed up? So, hey, you know, one time when I was visiting you at your house, you made me a gold, Organifi Gold as a hot tea, and I'd never realized you could make it hot. It's the best way. And I was like blown away. I'm like, wow, this is incredibly good. It tastes like dessert. Mm -hmm. But it, unlike most sweet things, if you take sweet stuff at night you can't sleep very well and it jacks you up but this stuff was just so relaxing and so amazing i was like wow this is incredible and i know you're allergic to coconut yeah right so but what i like to do and this is when i'm being bad you see there's a much bigger cannoli than the cannoli you see today exactly. I, I would eat ice cream and all kinds of comfort food because i'm from michigan uh -huh. but one thing that put my cravings in check i take a little cocoa whip yeah i put it on top of this oh, golden nice. tea okay it is the best drink yeah. at night you could ever have it's amazing yeah. I'm intolerant. I'm not allergic. So I did That's try it, it. It just makes me feel stressed. But I found that, you know, if I don't overdo it, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to have everybody try Organifi Gold because we all need to sleep deep and pay attention to what our soul tells us while we dream so we can work together to mm. make this world a beautiful place for everybody and get our freedom back and get rid of the toxins in the government and other things we need to do. And now, for a limited time, Organifi Gold Pumpkin Spice is back. All the goodness of regular Organifi Gold with the flavors of fall. Pumpkin, cinnamon, nutmeg, and allspice. Go to Organifi.com forward slash check 20 and use the code check 20 to get 20% off your order of Organifi Gold Pumpkin Spice. That's Organifi.com forward slash check 20 and the code is CHEK20 to get 20% off your order. Sleep well. So the, the last piece that I'll just say about the saboteur before we move forward is you know, if we relate this to also some of your listeners who are probably athletes, you know, you, I'm sure you get a lot of athletes listening to your podcast. I remember as an athlete, there were times in which my greatest performances were when I was injured. That's interesting. And if, if I go into that and explore that, 
And I say, okay, well, why were some of my great, especially in golf tournaments, why were some of my greatest performances when I was injured? Well, when I was injured, I felt like there was less expectations. And when you feel less expectations, you free yourself up more. A lot of times we might use pain or injury as a way of lessening expectations to free ourselves up to perform. So it's something for athletes to pay attention to is when you're holding on to illness or when you're holding on to pain to lessen the load of expectation that feels like a burden to your to your performance. So that and then I would say I've seen a lot of secondary gain when it comes to people using their illness for some sort of recognition. For example, I've seen clients with Crohn's disease that start a foundation Mm -hmm. raising money for Crohn's disease or Lyme disease, and they're starting a foundation raising money for Lyme disease, and they're getting awards and, you know, being having things presented to them. So they, they actually create an identity of recognition around the illness. And there's a part of them that has secondary gain and not getting rid of it. Yes. You know, so a lot of these are very subtle, but important to pay attention to. And this is the essence of the saboteur. Yeah. One thing for the athletes, too, is I've had many athletes perform better while they were in therapy with me because they had some kind of an injury. And they come back and they go, how in the world is it that I did better when I'm still injured? And I'll say, well, first of all, you came to me in a state of being severely overtrained. And this is the first time in your life you've actually rested properly. So finally, you're finding out what it feels like to have a proper cycle of regeneration, an anabolic cycle. You were catabolic, catabolic, which means tissue destructive or fire, fire, fire. And finally, your injury is teaching you how to rest. And you can see that rest is powerful enough that even when you're not up to your optimal ability, because you're not fully rehabilitated yet, you're still performing better than you used to because you're actually resting. So it can bring people into quite a state of awareness on many levels. Absolutely. And your next archetype is the prostitute, another real busy archetype. (laughs) Yeah. So the prostitute represents your relationship with self-worth and self-esteem. So the prostitute is the part of us that compromises itself from a place of low self-worth and self-esteem. And the prostitute is the part of us that compromises its values, compromises its integrity, and compromises its self-worth all to ensure some sort of guaranteed outcome. That's an important thing when it comes to the prostitute. The prostitute's always looking for a guarantee. (laughs) It could be a guaranteed paycheck. Yes. Guaranteed security. Guaranteed loyalty. Like an example of this and how far back this can go. I remember as a child, my mom would give me some money to go to the movies on a Friday night with some friends. And I might have been like 12 years old. And I remember buying my friends movie tickets. And my mom would ask me for change and wonder why I didn't have any when I got home. And I, I thought at the time that I was just being a good friend. I was being nice, you know. But I remember th- the first time I became aware of this was when you sent me your intake forms as a client. And some of this was the archetype questionnaire. And I realized that I was buying their loyalty. And why was I buying their loyalty? Because I didn't have the self-worth or self-esteem to just rely on myself and that they would be friends with me just for me. 
So I figured I would buy an insurance policy. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> right? I think so. Um, That's one of the problems. Right? Some of these things work, but eventually, yeah. but eventually, uh, you know, uh, there's an old saying, a friend with weed is a friend indeed. But the day you show up without any weed, you find out who your friends are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know where any of those friends went, so it didn't work long term. Oh, well, you, you gained some new ones along the way. Yeah. So yeah, the, the prostitute's always looking for a guaranteed outcome and it's always willing to compromise itself in the process. And, you know, if people want to understand why they have a hard time connecting to their intuition, a lot of it relates to the prostitute. Yes. Because the prostitute's always trying to ensure guarantees and protect you from anything that's a threat to your security. That's a threat to your survival. And a lot of times what your intuition might be guiding you into goes against what your ego thinks you need for security. Maybe you work as an accountant and your soul says to go be a painter. The prostitute says, that's a terrible idea. You're getting a steady paycheck as an accountant. So one of the things that blocks intuition the most is the prostitute archetype. Now, the light side of the prostitute, because remember, they're 50% light and 50% shadow. The light side of the prostitute is knowing your worth and willing to negotiate from a place of power rather than self-compromise, right? So you realize that a lot of things are transactional. And if you know your worth, you know what you have to offer you then know what you need in return. And it might also be kind of this idea of knowing your price. Like if a client comes to me and says, Greg, I'd like a coaching session. And I say, sure, when would you like to do it? And they say, how about tomorrow at 3 a.m.? <laughs> I, <would say, laughs> I would say no, because that goes against my values of sleep. Yeah. But then they might say, I'll give you $40,000 for the session. <laughs> So I might say, I'll see you at 245. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, that's an example of the empowered prostitute. Yes. Who knows what he has to offer or knows what she has to offer and knows from an empowered place where he or she is willing to negotiate. It reminds me of a story I've got to share with you and the listeners. A number of years ago, I don't know, probably early 2000s, one of my clients it was a patient of mine. He came to me with, I think, some bad back pain, but he was a billionaire and I got to know him and work with him. And he, he lived in, well, he had houses all over the world, but I happened to be, I did a lot of work in England. So I would also see him in England. Sometimes he would see me in, in my office in Encinitas or he, or I would see him in England, but I was with him at his place in England. We were just having a chat. And I said to him, I said, do you mind me asking? I mean, you know, I, I, I would really like to have more financial abundance in my life how is it that you've made so much money? And he smiled at me and he said, well, Paul, when people call me up, because he, he, he did a lot of consulting in different industries, but a lot in, in the television industry. And uh, he said, Paul, when a client calls up for an appointment, my, I tell my secretary to tell them I'm booked six months in advance. And he says, almost all these people are in a hurry because they've got some kind of an emergency they need my help with. So inevitably, she, she will tell them that he's $50,000 an hour. And so he says to his secretary, call them back up and say, he's, he, the, tell them I'm booked for six months, but that he'd be willing to see me sooner for $100,000 an hour. 
And he says, inevitably, they'll, they'll take it. And then he says, then I tell them, well, I'm sorry, I've, I've got another emergency on my plate right now. I can't help you. But if you're willing to pay $100,000 an hour, or he just keeps going up like $50,000 at a time until finally, you know, he realizes, okay, it's worth taking the client now because he's got his own values. But if he tells them $150,000 an hour up front, they're going to say no. So he gives them this chance to say there's a possibility. But then he says, he puts a roadblock in front of it. And he says, that's how I made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the prostitute is your negotiation skills. Yes. <laughs> and that's where there's light and shadow. You know, the light of the negotiation is knowing your worth, knowing your value. But the shadow side is, for example, how much of people's prayer life with God is an act of negotiation? Almost all of it. 99% of it. Of God, I want this and I promise if you give me this, I won't do this in return. Right. Right. That's the prostitute in charge of your prayer life. And isn't it funny? That's how the whole, that's how the whole Catholic Church makes money. <laughs> exactly. For repent your sins and we'll give you a fee and, you know, uh, now, now the the confession box is is a little different. But if you study the history of Christianity, depending on the degree of the sin, is how much they charged you, and it would go all the way up. You know, if you had sex with someone else's wife, they would say, "Well, you're going to have to give us your whole farm." And so, there's plenty of documentation showing the Catholic Church accumulated billions and billions of dollars by wagering people for how much it would cost to absolve that sin. And so, this is this is I'm saying this is embedded in our culture, in our Christian culture. This is why it's so important, especially nowadays, to go deep into these archetypes, is you realize that you could look at religious institutions, you could look at the pandemic, and you can look at all of this through the lens of archetypes, and you realize that all of these agendas, if you want to call them, is just the exploitation of survival archetypes. Yes, it is. You're exactly right. And it's in military organizations, corporations. It's rampant everywhere. But it really boils down to having a clear sense of yourself, having a dream, and having values, which are also boundaries. You know, there's certain things, there's certain things that I will not, like, I, I wouldn't care how much somebody offered me to sponsor my podcast. If you offered me a million dollars a year to sell sugar-coated junk food, I wouldn't do it because I have a clear boundary there, because I, I have a sense of when I'm prostituting and victimizing myself into a deformation of my character, into what could potentially become an illness, or bring my shadow to be so strong that I lose myself. And, and look how many people have gotten rich that way, but spend the rest of their life dealing with diseases they've created for themselves. And you know, you can trust me, I know, because I've had a lot of them as patients, so I know exactly how this plays out. Yep, absolutely. You know, this is why these archetypes are your relationship with your own power. And when they're not healed, these archetypes are where you give your power away. And authorities love power and control. So they're all ready to appeal to the shadow expression of these survival archetypes. I'll give you a case history just to make it even more clear and interesting for the listeners. One of my patients many years ago, was a billionaire in the telecommunications industry, and he got cancer. And he came to me quite, as you can imagine, very scared. 
And he said to me, you know, Paul, I eat healthy. You know, I, I follow your four doctor model. I do all these things. I can't figure out why I've got cancer. So I said to him, you know, would you like me to investigate this spiritually for you? He said, yes, I want to I want to know what the hell's going on. So I did what I do. I won't describe the process because it's not important. But ultimately, what I found out by reading his energy field and speaking to his own soul is that he had made billions of dollars by basically sabotaging a lot of other people and other companies so that he could get the contracts and do the things that he wanted to do to put himself in a position to have the financial success he did. So I said to him, I shared this with him, and he broke out into tears because he realized very clearly that he had done that. And I said, the first thing you need to do if you want to heal from your cancer is go back to each of those people and apologize and wherever you can compensate them for the loss that you basically forced them into. And, uh, you know, so that became his healing work right there. Yeah. And last thing before we move into the last few archetypes is, you know, we said these are survival archetypes, which means that anytime you're moving into survival mode, you're shifting into these archetypes. So if you look at this from just a physiological or biological standpoint, anytime your nervous system moves into a sympathetic fight or flight state, no matter where it's coming from, you're going to trigger these survival archetypes. So if you look at, you know, the COVID pandemic, for example, we were living, our culture was living in a collective sympathetic state. Totally. Literally a collective fight or flight state. So you wonder, why are people behaving this way? Why are people acting this way? It's like, well, when the autonomic nervous system is dysregulated, you're in survival mode. And if you're in survival mode, you're going to always revert back to these survival programs. So the first step to healing these archetypes is actually balancing your nervous system. Yes, and that goes back to my concept of, you know, being grounded in four doctors. So you have the energy and exactly. the vitality to, to do the healing work. Fortunately, during the pandemic, you know, and I know, and a lot of people know that all of a sudden, getting healthy became a genuine interest for people. And where a lot of people were going out of business, people that were selling, you know, supplements and health services and health education were having a boom. You know, our, our, the Czech Institute had a booming period. It, it was amazing. And so it was a paradox for me because I can see all this crazy shit going down in the world and, you know, people getting traumatized, abused, manipulated, lied to, etc., coerced. But at the same time, I saw that that's what it took to finally get them to participate in their own healing. So, you know, there's the old saying, God works in mysterious ways. So as this whole thing continues to shake down, I continue to look at the potential for us all to uh, use this opportunity to grow and to heal and to develop values and to develop boundaries and to recognize what sovereignty is and to have the energy and the agency to maintain it. Because if you don't do that, then, you know, once the devil learns a trick that works, the same trick keeps getting used. I mean, how many times is this trick of fear, manipulation, and brainwashing been used on people for as long as human records go back? So at some point, you know, it's up to each of us to decide when we're going to break out of the matrix, so to speak. Absolutely. 
you want to give us an overview of uh, whichever other archetypes you have in your course that you want to talk about? You got a big one there. <laughs> the Imago Dei is a monster. Yeah, so let's save the best for last. The mother and father archetype. So in the course, we go into seven archetypes. We go into the four survival archetypes, and then we go into the mother, father, and Imago Dei. So the mother and father archetype represent your relationship with the masculine and your relationship with the feminine. And these are introduced to you first through your relationship with mom and dad. So mom is your introduction to the feminine. Dad is your introduction to the masculine. And your relationship with your mom sets the stage for your relationship with your inner feminine, the feminine of others, and other females. And anything that we don't heal with the mother archetype, we project onto other women. Anything we don't heal with the father archetype, we project onto other men. And this is very evident and very clear in how it shows up in our life. I remember, you know, the first six or seven years working as a holistic health practitioner, 80% of my clients were women. And I was curious, like, why that is. And I realized, well, I had a closer relationship with my mom than my dad. So going into kind of like deeper, more vulnerable spaces within us, it was more comfortable for me to do that with women than men. And then after six or seven years, I started to heal a lot of the unhealed wounds that I had with my father. And I actually started noticing certain challenges with my mother. And then all of a sudden, 80% of my clients were men. (laughs) And I realized that my relationship with the mother and father archetype or the masculine and the feminine was actually being mirrored back to me in the people that I was in relationship with. And, you know, so in the course, I take you through a lot of deep healing from the mother lineage, from the father lineage, including some ancestral work that's involved because a lot of the patterns that are passed down from mom or dad are really inherited patterns from past generations. So we go into some of that. And then also the mother and father archetype on a deeper level start to connect to how you parent yourself. Very much And a lot of the challenging ways in which we parent ourselves are a reflection of how mom or dad parented you. And The way mom parented you is a lot of times how you receive yourself. The way dad parented you is a lot of times how you think you're going to be received by the outer world. So these archetypes really set the stage, the mother and father, for a lot of these inner workings of our relationship with ourself and our relationship with the outer world. Jung Jung refers to that as the relationship with the mother creates our inner ego and the relationship with the father creates our outer ego. So the inner ego is how you relate to yourself on the inside. You know, for example, you could present yourself to the outside as a strong, successful person, but on the inside, you could be very, very insecure, which is often going to be a representation of your mother's natural mode of expressing herself. She could be an insecure person, but you've internalized it. And your father can be very macho and you know, ass kicker and look at me. And so you have this. So the, the, the reason that's important is because we often have two ego. We all have two egos. And, and, and Jung was really the first one to put it into this context and say, you know, a lot of people's um, health challenges, mental, emotional challenges, 
etc are because there's this inner conflict between the outer ego and the inner ego and and so really what you have is two people that are often not in harmony with the oneness of yourself living in you one's got its face turned to the outer world the other one's got its face turned to the inner world and this type of work helps you bring those two into harmony so that there's not this internal battle within you and these internal battles are, are the source of a tremendous amount of neurosis and disease and addiction so they're very very important patterns to look at yeah you know i'll share just simple examples of how this might show up in my own exploration of the mother and father archetype so if the mother archetype represents my inner self and how i receive myself you know, when I look at my relationship with my mom, my mom was very loving. But if I look at some of the challenging aspects, I could say she was somewhat smothering. So I asked myself, okay, where does the smothering energy show up in my relationship with myself? Well, used to be super OCD, very obsessive. I noticed that Whenever there was any pain or symptom in my body, I would always be so quick to try and fix it, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the same patterns of how my mom related to me actually just showed up in how I related to my body. So if I ask myself, what did I need from my mom but not receive at the time? The word that comes to mind is space. I needed room to breathe. So I say, okay, well, how can I give that to my body? Well, next time discomfort arises in my body, don't go so quick to try and find the remedy right away. Just sit and be present with it. Give it space. Give it room to breathe. And all of a sudden, that's how I start to heal the mother archetype inside of me. Yeah, that's what the alchemists call cooking in it. Don't medicate it. Cook stew. Or as Jung would say, hold the tension of the opposites before you try to quickly respond to the challenge. Just allow it to be in you and, and climb up and take a witness position and watch the dynamics of it so that you're not caught up inside it. I mean, of course, you know this because I've done many of these types of exercises with you in your own healing. But for the listeners, you know, I think one of the one of the diseases of our culture is we've been conditioned to medicate everything from an itch to a scratch to a pimple to everything instead of really saying, you know, how am I creating this? You know, what's, what is it about my external environment or my internal environment that might be triggering these types of reactions from my body? And if we numb the symptoms and block the symptoms, and we actually never really learn what the process is that is unfolding within us. Yeah. An example of the father archetype being how the world receives me, you know, Growing up, my dad would receive a lot of the accomplishments and performance and results, whether it's academically, athletically, but there wasn't a lot of receiving emotion, yes. right? So when I present myself to the world as a young man, it used to be, let me present my accomplishments and achievements, but let me compartmentalize the emotions, Mm -hmm. Right. So I had to work through a lot of the challenges of believing the narrative that the world won't receive my emotions. The world won't receive my vulnerabilities. So I can only bring forth my positive qualities or my strengths and I have to leave everything else behind. But obviously that fragments an individual. 
So that's an example of how the mother inwardly and the father outwardly would show up archetypally. Yeah, those are very important dynamics. Hi, everybody. Today, I have a very special, practical, free offering for you. I suspect you know that low back injuries are the most common of all orthopedic injuries, regardless of age, profession, or what sport people play. And a huge percentage of low back injuries happen while squatting. Squatting is one of the seven primal pattern movements I identified as essential to our ability to function well in our home, work, recreational, fitness, or sports environments. Most don't realize it, But the squat pattern is one of the most common patterns that lead to low back injuries. We are using the squat pattern when we get in and out of chairs, on and off the toilet, or engage small children. Additionally, to get in and out of a car requires a single-legged squat with a bend and a twist, particularly if you drive a car that's low to the ground, like a sports car, which is a very complex movement for anybody with a weak dysfunctional core or who has an unresolved back injury from the past, which is exceedingly common, even among world-class athletes. I would love to give you the squat assessment I developed for the students of the Czech Academy so you can identify any muscle imbalances, joint restrictions, or technical flaws that include the need for form correction or corrective stretching, joint mobilization, and specific strengthening. Anybody that wants to heal from back pain, avoid unwanted back pain, enhance work readiness and athletic performance, will be well supported by using my free squat assessment checklist. My squat assessment is ideal for any athlete wanting to optimize their performance in the squat. My squat assessment includes three key setup assessments, 11 squat execution assessments, a list of key indicators of muscle imbalances, muscle weakness, or joint restrictions. Additionally, once you've downloaded my squat assessment, you will receive a sequence of follow-up videos that will show you how to use it. These instructional videos are not only highly informative, they are also free. To get your squat assessment form and free instructional videos on how to use it to its potential, go to chekinstitute.com forward slash squat dash assessment. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash squat dash assessment. I'm sure you'll be amazed how effective this squat assessment is, even if you don't have back pain, and how much it can help you help others. Enjoy. And I also would like to say, because, you know, we've pointed out a hell of a lot in this podcast. I mean, it could be overwhelming for people because people could say, oh, my God, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. Oh, where am I going? How am I going to do this? One of the things that took me a long time to learn as a therapist and as a person is that it's our imperfections that actually make us special and unique. You know, the, the pursuit of perfect healing or archetypal cleansing to the nth degree. You know, um, I've had patients that are so hell-bent, for example, to keep themselves clean inside that they practically live on detox after detox after detox, which can be very exhausting to the body. It's bleeding too much resources out of the body because you oftentimes when you're doing detox, you're not just taking the bad stuff away. You're taking a lot of the good stuff away because certain binding agents don't have preferences for good versus bad. They bind and they take. And so what I would encourage everybody to realize is that there, there is also beauty in being yourself. And I don't think Greg or I are saying, hey, you're all screwed up. You need to get on this and fix yourself immediately or you're going to be a complete screw up in the world or whatever but i think for me i've always looked at myself like a piece of art and that 
We all know that when we make a piece of art, we can get very judgmental of it, but we're usually worried about what other people are going to think. But if we accept our art as an act of creativity, as an act of play, as an act of authentic inner expression, and don't hold judgment on it and say there's beauty in the art of myself, then we can go about our healing work as an art form and as a gift to ourself just simply because we are enjoying the process of the art of becoming. So I think the, the distinction is don't, I don't think it's a good motivation to go about this type of healing work just because you want to keep up with the Joneses or, or, or you want to avoid the judgment of yourself or others. If you go about it as an act of love because you simply want to allow yourself to become more of who and what you really are and see it as a work of art, then I don't think healing is so stressful because some people get so fixated on these types of healing courses and processes that they actually, um, they can become very, very stressful in their life. And, and I've had many patients that were seeing eight doctors at once or five therapists at once or five doctors and three coaches and, and four or five other people. And they're trying to perfect themselves for everybody at the same time but they can completely and utterly burn themselves out and then begin to resent the healing process and not want to be involved in it anymore. So I think it's just do what you can do every day. Be honest with yourself. And as I say to a lot of my patients and clients, look, if you just improve 1% a day on any one of your four doctors or aspects of your life and you do it for 100 days, you'll be 100% new person in 100 days. But nobody really goes into the gym and complains because you added 1% to the bar, most of them wouldn't even notice. And really psychologically, it just boils down to, am I participating today and being honest? And I can, can I just be, do a little bit better in some way than I did yesterday? Can I, can I look a little bit more at my mother relationship, my prostitute, and take a little ownership and just see if I can step a little more into the center of myself, just a little more each day. And I've, I know that for myself, that's been very, very helpful, you know, because for example, my childhood was, was stirred up all sorts of crap that I'm still working on. And, and it can be overwhelming if you're not careful. But when I look back and say, look, I'm happy with who I am, but I also enjoy the art of growing and becoming. So I participate in my own healing as an artist, not as somebody who feels leveraged or perfectionism or any of that stuff. So I think it's a, an important context to hold all this in. Yeah, you know, I find that the more you heal these archetypes, the more it's just a permission slip to return back to your true nature. Yes. Because a lot of times you were taught as a child that being in your true nature is not okay. That being in your true nature is not safe. So, you know, an example of that was my true nature as a child was very quiet. I was very silent. I didn't speak all that much. And I would sit in the car or sit at the dinner table and I would just be very still and very quiet and just observing. And whenever I was in that state, the question would always be, Greg, what's wrong? And so the child in me develops this belief system that my natural state of being is wrong. Mm -hmm. 
So now I start using a lot of these archetypes to rebel against my natural state of being or to protect that wound, that core wound that my original nature or my true nature is incorrect in some way. So a lot of healing these archetypes is simply clearing the path for you to return back to that, which is often where your greatest gifts are. Yes. And that's, you know, that there's two two child archetypes. There's the child of childhood, but then there's the child of the wise man and the wise woman. And that is the natural spontaneity, the beginner's mind, the willingness to be open-minded, to explore, to look for the best in other people. Children forgive and forget easily like dogs often do. And so I think as we heal our first child, we have more access to the child that comes with the wisdom of life. And I know, you know, it's helped me a lot to maintain that child because through all the stress of, of the, the whole COVID, uh, you know, f- fiasco, it's very easy to find yourself getting caught up, stressed out, worried about business, worried about future, you know, a lot of things that can spin your head. So for me, I found going out into my rock garden and just forgetting about the world or painting or playing with my kids a little bit or, you know, going bowling with the family or things like that. It, it helps you balance the world in yourself. But if you lose touch with that child, as you become engrossed in the world as an adult, you can find yourself really suffering from um, excessive adulthood. And that can be painful, heavy, and it leads to heart attacks. It leads to all sorts of problems. Yeah. So the, the final archetype that we go into in the course is the Imago Dei. So the Imago Dei is the image of God that you hold within. And the reason this one, which you introduced me to in our coaching, and I'm sure all of your podcast listeners know how important this one is from you know, a lot of what you share is this archetype informs all the others. This archetype informs the child archetype. You know, for example, if God is a father figure, it puts you in the position of a child archetype. Based on your perception of what God is, that determines when you feel like a victim, right? A lot of people have this transactional nature with religion or spirit, which says, when I do something good, I deserve a reward. When I do something bad, I deserve a punishment. Well, what happens when you do something good, but you don't get the reward that you were wanting? Or what happens when you get some sort of undesired outcome, but you didn't find something that you think you did to deserve it? That sets up the victim archetype. And a lot of those belief systems go back to your relationship with God. Your idea of what God is influences when you sabotage yourself, when you prostitute yourself. You know, we talked about prayer for a lot of people being a form of negotiation. So you could see, you know, even with the mother and father archetype, until people do some of this healing work, they're always projecting the mother and father qualities onto the Imago Dei. And so you could see very clearly how the Imago Dei informs every other archetype and how you choose to be in relationship with it. Yep, you're dead on. It's very, very important. And, 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 not, and having an atheist approach does not exclude you from the Imago Dei. It just tells you what your belief about God is. 
And, you know, I could go into a long dissertation on that, but it, I'm saying that nobody can escape the Imago Dei. Jung says the, all archetypes emerge from the Imago Dei. So it is the source of all archetypes. In other words, God, in this sense, represents consciousness, and all the archetypes give us the ability to be conscious of. And so what, whatever you put into the archetype of the Imago Dei taints such that you become conscious of things in ways that people with other Imago Dei orientations do not. A Muslim is not conscious of the same way a Buddhist, an atheist, or a Taoist is. So, you know, these are very, very deep and important things. And so what, what are some of the, uh, out of curiosity, if you could give a quick summary, what are the, some of the ways you have people look into their Imago Dei relationship? So in the course, I take people pretty systematically through a process with each archetype. So I created a system in the course of walking people through each archetype, and I break it down into four phases. And each phase has a, a video to it that you follow along. The first is we dive into the archetype, all the light and shadow aspects of it. I share a lot of example as to how the archetype shows up, light and shadow, what the origins of it are. And so you have a really kind of clear picture and illustration of what this archetype looks like. So you can start to see how it's reflecting to you in your own life. Then in the second phase or the second video for each archetype, I take you into a meditation which now you can access the archetype within you. So I take you through a specific meditation to cultivate a relationship with that archetype. And then in the third phase or the third video, I take you through an EFT practice, which is a tapping technique coupled with words and mantras that we speak out loud to do more of an energetic clearing practice. So we go into meditation, then we work with it energetically. And then in the fourth phase, the fourth video, I take you through some integration work, which involves journaling questions, which involves me sharing a lot of my own life experience so you can relate to it kind of in like simple and practical terms and simple and practical ways. So it's pretty systematic in how I walk you through each archetype. And those four phases broken down into four videos allows you to really kind of like get to know it, understand it, go into it, do some clearing with it, and then integrate. So it's really worked really well kind of in that way. You know, um, I watched several of the videos, super well done, very beautiful cinematography, structure of the course is clean and easy to follow, and the videos are not too long, so you don't get overwhelmed by it. I think you did a great job of packaging it so that a person could make it through it and, and gain the awareness and, and do the healing work without it becoming, you know, like a full-time job type situation. So I think you did a really good job on that. I actually was enjoying watching, even though I'm very schooled in all these things, it was fun to see how you've packaged it and presented it. And the, the, the sense I got as well, Greg's done a really great job of making this an experience that is inviting to people, not overwhelming. You know, I've got courses I bought two years ago that I still haven't got through. And the first module is like two hours and 35 minutes and there's 28 modules, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, unfortunately, I'm one of the guys that tends to, you know, want to help you by giving you everything. And so uh, as I've grown up, I've been able to really appreciate more keeping it down to smaller pieces and then just offering an additional course so that people can go deeper. But I think it's really important to 
help people have some success without breaking the bank or breaking their back. And then they can kind of, you know, drink from the well of, of self-realization and healing uh, at their own pace. So I think, I think for everybody listening, the course is, is very doable and everything we've talked about is in there. And, and, and I think most people listening have the common sense to know how important this would be if you really want to achieve any degree of freedom in your life. Yeah. And what I, what I really enjoy about how I designed the course is the healings happening in real time as you're going through it. It's not me giving you a bunch of information and saying, okay, here you go. Now do with it what you will. I'm actively taking you through the meditations and the tapping and the clearing. So just by going through the course, you're, you're experiencing healing in real time as you go. So it's not something that you have to then take all the information and do a ton of other work outside of it. Of course, there's always integration work that we're doing because we're seeing how these things are showing up in our lives. But I like how the healing's happening in real time as you go through this program. Yeah, it's good. I think you did a fantastic job as you had done with your previous course. Where can people sign up for the course? And is there an offer for the Living 4D listeners to uh, support them getting into the course? Yeah, so the link that I'll send people to, which will be in the show notes as well, is bit.ly forward slash healing core archetypes. So that'll be your link, which is bit.ly forward slash healing core archetypes. And then using the code check 20, they'll get 20% off at checkout. Fantastic. Very, very nice. And your previous course, uh, you're willing to also offer a discount on, is that correct? Yeah. So my first course, which is the second podcast we did, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, we have the same discount code for that. So it's check 20. And that course is found at healing4d.com forward slash htm. But I'll send, I'll send over your link, which we'll have in the show notes as well. So we can have both of them there that people can just click and go right to. That's a very good course as well. And, and, and similar structure and, and very usable, digestible, and a nice compliment to this one as well. Yeah, the the first course was really taking a fully holistic approach to mental health. So anxiety, depression, addiction, things like that. So that was like a really nice 21 day overview of, you know, healing a lot of this kind of mental health crisis that we're all kind of going through with our kind of like current state of the world. And this one is a really nice follow up, but going deeper into the archetypes. And I think people are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you know, anybody that's made it this far in the podcast has probably had a hundred bells go off in their head going, oh my God, that's me. That's my brother. That's my mother. That's my spouse. You know, you, you know, it's because these things are, are so innate within us. Often it's not till we turn our conscious awareness back inward that all of a sudden it pops out. Like, you know, you know how um, a funny example is when you're used to wearing glasses, sometimes you can find yourself looking all over the house for your glasses and all of a sudden you realize they're on your head. And we're so used to wearing archetypes metaphorically, we often don't realize that what we see outside of us is actually right on our head <laughs> or in our head. Absolutely. Well, good, Greg. Thank you very much. Uh, what other services are you offering people just in case people are interested in your service? Because you and, and also you do do online coaching, but you live 
what, what's your location in New York, just in case people want to see you in person? Yeah, so in person, I'm in New Jersey. Um, but I work with people in person in kind of like the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey. Um, but I do a lot of work remotely. So anyone that wants some coaching, they can go to my website, which is healing4d.com. And we do, you know, one-on-one coaching. Sometimes I do some like group workshops, things like that. But my coaching is in person here in New Jersey. And then over Zoom, I do a lot of remote work as well. Okay. And and how do they reach you again for your personal coaching be by Zoom or just to connect to you? Yeah, my website, healing4d.com. So that's healing4d.com. That's the best place to find me. And is that, can they email you through there as well? Yeah, there'll be a contact page on there where they can send me a direct email. Great. And then they can, yeah, just reach out to me that way. That's the best place to find me. Well, it was a fantastic journey. You know, I've talked about these things and taught countless classes on it and studied it very deeply, as you know, but I still had a fantastic time going over it with you. And I love how, you know, seeing how you've digested this material and taking you know, things you've studied from other people and made it something very unique and special. It's, it was fun for me because I really, one, I love seeing how it's, you know, because I coached you quite a long time ago now. How many years has it been since we finished our coaching together? Since we finished, probably five years, four, four or five yes. years. Yeah. So, you know, it's fun for me to see the evolution of Greg, you know, because I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm getting to see the fulfillment of what my dream was for you as as your coach and therapist. And and uh, as you can see, my prediction was accurate, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it's, it's an honor to be here. And thank you again for playing such a pivotal role in my journey. Well, it's my pleasure. And, and it is every day. So I'm just grateful that you're out there offering all this to the world. And you see, you're the wounded healer. We were both the wounded healer. And, and, and when we have to go through our wounds and take responsibility for our healing, we, we actually really become valuable to the world because it's not just a theory or an idea. We, we know, you know what it takes to get through this and it makes us much better as coaches and therapists because you know, we know when to back down or when to accelerate and we know, you know when to have empathy and compassion because we know how deep these things can go. And so it's exciting. So my point for all of you listening, if you want a, a, a really honest therapist and coach greg's really done a lot of deep healing and come from some pretty challenging situations uh, challenging enough he needed my help and i'm not an easy guy to get a hold of or to afford so most people don't come to me until they're in big trouble and and i made a decision to work with greg because i could see he really not only needed help but he was committed and he's he's not only done his healing but he's become a great teacher for all of us including me so thank you greg thank you Well, I'll close by saying thank you to all of you. We are on a healing journey together. That's for sure. The Earth School is alive and real 24 hours a day, but we can always choose the pace that we make it through Earth School and how much freedom we create for ourselves. And thank you to my sponsors for all the amazing products you create. And thank you to all of you for anything you buy from the sponsors. A little bit supports the podcast. And I look forward to sharing something exciting with you next week. Lots of love. Have fun until then. Aho, great spirit. We are safe. We are home. We are whole. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Greg Schmaus. 
Greg is offering Paul's listeners 20% off his course, Healing Your Core Archetypes, A Journey of Empowerment. Go to bit.ly forward slash healing core archetypes and use the code CHECK20 at checkout to get your 20% discount. That's bit.ly forward slash healing core archetypes and the code is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, the number two and zero. You can also get 20% off Greg's course, Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness, by going to healing4d.com forward slash HTM and using the same code CHECK20. That's healing, the number four, d.com forward slash HTM and the code is CHECK20. You can find Greg on Instagram at 4D underscore healing or visit his website at healing4d.com for more information on his coaching and consulting services. Catch up with Paul on Instagram, TikTok and threads at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors by Optimizers, Organifi and Paleo Valley, our podcast sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures, and our preferred product sponsor, Peak Life. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discounts for our listeners. The links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcast, and YouTube. 